Welcome folks to this week video of mental illness. So we kind of separate the uh, mental illness out of neurology uh, and we're just going to focus on those a little bit more. Um, there are three major categories uh, for the mental illness we're going to discuss this week. So let's get into it. Okay. Here we go. So first one, we're going to talk about schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, um, technically speaking, is a rare, a rare disease. Uh, in actuality, schizophrenia is about one percent of population, so it's very rare. Uh, when we when we talk mostly about psychotic uh, condition, true schizophrenia, it's definitely, definitely, really rare type um, but you know in your line of work I'm sure you guys seen uh, more than a fair share of patients who have schizophrenia um, and most of those patients uh, are not a true schizophrenic most of them um, usually a substance substance induced psychosis usually uh, they tend to use drugs uh, to induce uh, psychotic behavior or um, symptom of psychosis. So, uh, so please differentiate between those. So these are the true schizophrenia, and most often time, you know, they, you know, caused by genetics, and uh, they run in the family quite, um, quite a bit. Okay, uh, usually emerge in the young adults. So you you could remember, you know, with this um, young adults. So what do they mean? What do we mean? Usually between the age of sixteen. Uh, to about 22, 23, uh, could go up to 25 years old. So um, that's when you're gonna see a lot of prevalence in these um, in in this disease. More men uh, have than women usually. And again, schizophrenia. Uh, usually, you need to have two parents who have mental disorder. Not necessary. They they don't have schizophrenia, but any mental disorder would usually do the trigger. Uh, for, ins for instance, if one have bipolar, the other one have um, depression or you know OCD or even uh, really um, more of anxiety disorder as well, uh, you can uh, get to uh, schizophrenia. Okay. Um, so what is schizophrenia? Basically you have um, character characteristic of a, a few things. But one of the main things that you're probably going to see is the uh, a breakdown in their cognitive and emotional of their personality. So what do what do I what that what does that entail? Usually, um, you have think of your brain is become overexcited, overexcited to the normal um, normal behavior that you see normal stimuli. So if your brain become overexcited in those stimuli that's coming in, um, this is not to say that uh, schizophrenia patients are more unique than the other, but uh, normally for most of us, we have an ability to, your brain have ability to disregard the information that's coming in. For instance, you know, on a given, 
any given minute in your life uh, let's say you were just driving from one spot to another spot and it's you don't have to take that long just perhaps just a minute of that driving or even walking okay, there are millions of stimuli that coming in to you you know could be through your eyes your nose your mouth your skin uh, you're bombarded constantly with all of these uh, information that coming in okay uh, even your eyes alone you actually have millions of pixels of information actually coming in and majority of time you don't even pay attention to most of those for instance like when you were driving um, you didn't even know how you got home you don't remember whether you stop on your green light and red light and you know you don't recognize any of those your brain kind of went on to that cruise control uh, recognizing all of these patterns and things that already been put in your head um, but not really put you know you to you know um, kind of make you aware of those uh, intention or those stimuli that coming in you might be paying attention to the, you know talking on the phone you know with your loved ones or friend and you're not even and you have no idea how you actually got home you just know you just drove and you drove safely uh, your brain just put yourself in that autopilot kind of mode uh, and not really paying attention to a lot of the stimuli that coming in no. but with schizophrenia patient that doesn't happen um, pretty much every stimuli become over heightened uh, imagine you start hearing voices or things that's not even there uh, you, s you actually have these heightened uh, stimuli coming into your brain your, your brain become over receptive of anything and just about anything and anything even your imaginaries is creating your own voices and visual uh, hallucinations so so your brain uh, become too active overactive and causing your your body to uh, bring in those those stimuli okay uh, again it's uh, highly genetic um, usually you're seeing in twins uh, 30 to 50 percent um, so you in some cases maybe 12 uh, 12 skin uh, 12 percent with the psychotic twin psychotic um, so and there's other things like your prenatal condition perinatal condition as well exposure to certain things infection uh, toxins could actually cause uh, you to actually come up with schizophrenia but um, there's uh, a lot of theories about schizophrenia but one of the biggest one is basically that your brain is just become really overstimulus uh, in terms you know in terms of um, certain part of your brain become more receptive um, especially the frontal part of your brain and this is what we see quite a bit that your frontal part of your brain become really hyperactive uh, there's other um, costs as well in terms of neurotransmitter like glutamate hypothesis um, dopamine pathways um, so all of these dopamine pathway kind of explain the um, the drugs like meth and spice some of those how how are those actually affected your brain so um, but you could see here very easily uh, that more of your uh, front part variety part of your brain is is affected by schizophrenia uh, you actually have over stimuli um, 
actually this is showing the the great gray matter loss that you actually have more losses here um, but when you look at the PET scan uh, for uh, for the schizophrenia patient the brain just lights up like a Christmas tree as well as it's clearly overstimulated okay uh, dopamine system uh, definitely dopamine works in the frontal part of the brain and also your midbrain and hindbrain as well so this is where they uh, stimulate it so you have uh, too much stimuli in your frontal cortex meaning that you just your brain just keep constantly processing information or seven uh, whereas your midbrain uh, it will kind of over heighten your normal baseline behavior as well like your uh, your movements and also your uh, breathing and all those things breathing heart rates all of those as well uh, the key things to remember for schizophrenia uh, you need to know there are positive symptoms and negative symptoms and cognitive uh, symptoms as well so positive meaning that uh, it's kind of overload anything that's kind of too much anything that more than usual so thinking positive as an added sign that you have more more than you what you normally have so things like psychosis okay, episodes of psychosis uh, loose touch of reality hallucination and uh, there's uh, three types of hallucination you have the visual hallucination auditory and tactile usually spe uh, normally speaking um, for most people usually you will have the auditory first the hearing things first um, and usually auditory can be a standalone thing uh, visual is rare to have it by itself really rare and it's almost impossible to have it by itself usually you will have a visual accompanying by the auditory hallucination you have both of those um, but by itself usually it's not the case okay um, and then you have tactile um, it's kind of you know feeling things that crawling on your body some people have other sensories too like smell and taste uh, hallucination as well but may not be as severe as other things okay um, one of the things that you probably want to ask your patient is whether those hallucination including auditory is that a command hallucination is it telling them to hurt themselves or they, are they telling them to do things um, if it's command then things become more higher risk uh, uh, in whatever you know you're doing if they you know if the voice telling them to jump uh, the voice telling them to kill other people the voice telling them to uh, punch you uh, then you might want to be aware of all of those so when you ask uh, your patient um, are you hearing voices are you seeing things um, if they say yes so ask them what do you see what are did what do you hear what are they telling you okay so be more specific you really have to be specific in terms of hallucination uh, delusion what kind of false belief do they have uh, do not challenge their false belief uh, and there's no point of challenging them because the more you do the more you agitate them so there's not really a point saying you know you just drop it you don't just kind of okay well, that's very interesting thank you for letting me know um, don't tell them like oh you're wrong this is wrong it's all in your head you're just believing all this is not true 
uh, no. So just uh, just be uh, just kind of just take down the information. Don't challenge, or don't even promote it as well. Some people like promote it like, oh really? There's a pink elephant in this room. Oh, there's a unicorn. I would love to see. It. Can you point to me where it is? Oh my God, I'm gonna see a unicorn. Uh, don't uh, don't encourage it either. So um, you're gonna make things worse. So just kind of, you know, as a clinician, just being perceptive, just uh, writing things down and just um, just taking in the information. You don't need to elaborate on any of those information that they tell you. Uh, next one is organized behavior. This is uh, when they're just all over the place that you're going to see, you know, with the disorganized speech, diso uh, disorganized or bizarre behaviors. They just literally all, all, all over the place in terms of uh, speech and also their behavior. And this is just um, kind of to kind of summarize. Uh, there's a footnote on this that you could look in your PowerPoint uh, in terms of explaining all of these, you know, hallucination, heightened perception, clang, uh, per um, uh neologism, uh, which is really fun. They just make up all kinds of interesting word, word that doesn't make sense. Uh, loose association. They just just babble on and on and on doesn't make any sense whatsoever they're just talking and talking uh, kind of word salad kind of almost okay uh, there's also a negative symptom uh, we're gonna show I want to show you a few of those uh, and cognitive symptoms as well okay so negative symptom what does that mean a negative symptom is just a symptom that less than usual you just taking a usual symptom and taking it away so meaning that it, you know if normal behavior whatever that normal behavior is they just have less of it for instance they have poverty of speech uh, this is the, the opposite of that word salad this these guys just you know only say a few words maybe one or two words and you ask them a whole trying to have them you know uh, ask the open-ended question they just answer with a one or two word uh, socially withdrawn they just reclusive in the home um, not really wanting to go out blunt and flat affect their face is just completely doesn't respond to feelings um, doesn't respond to the story that they're telling they just come monotoning basically then that's the face the, the expression of the face there's no expression to the face that's what we refer to affect affect is the expression of your face um, Next one is the uh, the psychomotor or cognitive. Um, you have some sometimes you have these odd behavioral type of symptoms, like uh, gesture, catatonia. This is a lovely one where they just kind of sit like stone for hours on end. Um, really fun to play with them. Uh, and you you, know, you could move them to different position. You and they can't really pers you know pick in any. Uh, stimuli, even pain stimuli, uh, they won't be responding to any of those. Um, and basically, they uh, their brain is just too overpowerful in them, kind of to the point that everything hit that reset button and shutting down, not really perceptive to any uh, stimuli at all. Uh, treatment, you guys are going to talk more about these treatment in your farm class. Uh, you have, you have first generation antipsychotic these are the really hardcore drugs um, 
really have tons and tons of side effects and it's an old drug really old drug that we use uh, second generation is um, a typical one that we use um, there are some side effects to those as well uh, psychosocial therapy uh, less effective same thing with CBT uh, uh, usually we look for the treat uh, medication treatment first before we actually jump to any of these if you cannot get your patient to sit still in a room and talk and be able to understand what you're saying to them there's no point of having a you know a, a, a psychosocial therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy whatsoever okay a person is admitted to the hospital after experiencing delusion the nurse knows that delusion uh, you could pick one. Uh, the answer is below. Anyway, uh, you could look in your PowerPoint to see the answer. Okay. A mood disorder. Uh, what is mood disorder? Um, actually, before we begin, I think I'll just stop here for the for this one, and then I'll start mood disorder next time. Okay, folks, let's continue. Uh, for the mood disorder, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, you have, technically speaking, you have unipolar and bipolar. Um, unipolar, as you can see, it's only one mood, and whereas bipolar, you have two moods. Uh, bipolar, you have two types, bi bipolar one and two. Okay, bipolar one and two, and we'll talk more about those. Um, 33 to 5% for those bipolar, okay? Um, with mood disorder, this is where you have the major depressive disorder um, and dysthymia. Okay, so to kind of classify according to DSM five, uh, major depressive disorder. Did you look at major depressive disorder? Very important to remember this that. Uh, you need to have one of these two symptoms, okay, one of these two symptoms here um, for the two weeks duration, any two weeks duration, okay. Need the first two symptoms here has to be the same two week period in order to classify. But then you need, if you have one, of one or two of these, and then you need for the rest of them, let me put in different color, the rest of them, the rest of these, okay, from here on down to here, okay, from this to here, all of this you need to have uh, three more or four more. If you have two of these already, you just have to have three more. If you only have one of these, then you have to need four more uh, for 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 two week period in order to classify as major depressive disorder. Uh, so MDD, okay. So what are the first two? Uh, daily depressed mood for most of the day, okay? Daily diminished interest or pleasure in almost all activity for most of the day, okay? So when you're trying to uh, diagnose someone with depression, the key term is, is how it actually affects their daily lives, okay? How they affect their daily lives. So you know people could take you know feeling depressed mood for most of the day i mean some people might have feeling down a little bit uh, like they work 
they work hard a lot they're just busy at work they don't like enjoy their work or um, they just have a really horrible boss that doesn't mean they're actually depressed okay when we say depressed mood uh, it's it's to the point that it affects their daily function that's something if you remember is that it's affect their daily function daily lives so if I'm feeling depressed, but yet I'm still going to work, yet I'm still doing other things uh, in my life, it's not affecting my life, that prev it would prevent me from doing other things that I like to do. Um, if, if that's the case, that you, you, then you don't, you, you're not depressed. But if that's not the case, that your mood, you're feeling depressed to the point that it actually affects for you, affect you going out and doing things that you like to do. Uh, you know, I feel so depressed that I couldn't even, um, you know, do, uh, go to the theater, go see the movie, or you know, um, playing, um, s going outside with friend, hanging out with friend, or playing sport. Uh, if that's the case, then you do have depression. Okay, so it's how it actually affects your daily life, day to day's life. Um, the rest of the symptoms you could have weight gain weight loss depending uh, some people increase or decrease appetite also depend on the person insomnia or hypersomnia you sleep little or you sleep too much also depending on the person uh, you could have fatigue loss of energy the rest of these again you just need three or four of these symptoms to make up the major depressive disorder and i caution you not to jump the gun as well so you know Sometimes, if they are depressed because um, situational stuff, like let's say breaking up with boyfriend, girlfriend, divorce. Well, some divorce could be a, a happy, joyful thing as well. Um, not always depressed. Um, women, usually and most of the time, women, um, most of the time, are already depressed before the divorce is finalized. Uh, women is the first one, usually if... If women actually initiate the divorce, most often time they already went through that feeling of depression prior uh, to for the divorce to end, uh, prior to that fi finalizing that divorce. Um, the person, men, on opposite usually get blindsided. Um, you know, when women told them that you know they want the divorce, that's when men would actually go through the depression. Um, and you might see that even toward the end of the divorce, like, you know, the f when the divorce is finalized, men still kind of dwell on those where women already finish, you know, going through that process of depression and feeling sad and then get going through with that already. So keep that in mind. So um, also, you know, you know, sometimes you know when you feel when they sometimes some people going through those situational things it may not be depression it may not be major depressive disorder uh, this is something we call adjustment disorder where you are just adjusting to what whatever going on in, in your life you know you lost your parent you your friend died from covid-19 your coworker died from covid-19 uh, you feel sad you actually need that that time to grieve to for the loss or to deal with that emotion or feelings and that's perfectly okay doesn't mean you need to jump on the, you know putting people on medication uh, because of that so keep that in mind okay um there's a difference between uh, 
major depressive disorder and dysthymic disorder. Dysthymic is a chronic, chronic, I would say, chronic depression thing that they've been kind of dragged out for years on end. So it's not to the point that they become really, really, really deeply depressed, but just kind of mild, melancholy, depressed all the time for more than two years. And that's the key. Two more years. Okay, you're just kind of feeling melancholy, you're just kind of feeling depressed for the most part. Um, and uh, also, depression is definitely genetic. You could see here uh, 62% for bipolar and unipolar, so very high percentage. Um, so, high, highly, highly genetics. But again, meaning genetics doesn't mean that you will guarantee to get it that does mean that you um, that if it's if it's expressed you definitely will have it but if it's not ex expressed you may not have it cause there's um, some people saying you know some theories saying it could be neurochemical dysregulation so imbalancing of your chemical in your brain especially serotonin dopamine on noepi and epi um, there's also uh, endocrine portion where you, they think that could be uh, effects from your, you know, your hypothalamus, your pituitary, and your adrenal gland somehow is not working. Uh, like s for instance, people who have thyroid condition, you probably may see them with the hypothyroid could actually present themselves as a um, depressed person. So you might want to check the thyroid level too as well a lot of time. Uh, other causes, uh, you guys could take a look. Um, the key, the clinical manifestation, so some of the symptoms uh, I mentioned earlier, and we'll talk more about suicide at the end of this um, PowerPoint as well. Um, the other type uh, that we're going to get into is bipolar mania. Okay, So bipolar disorder, there are two types of bipolar. There's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Um, bipolar is mean it's actually going between the two feelings, two type of symptoms. So let me kind of show you uh, what that is. So let's say you have this is uh, the middle part is actually the normal person, normal feelings. Most people you have these uh, ups and down. You actually have some feelings. Someday you feel up, someday you feel down, so it's kind of normal, but you're kind of staying is in this normal curve, okay, normal curve of the feelings, okay. Now, when you get too high, uh, here it's become what we call hypomania, hypomania, and then on top is the mania, okay, and on the bottom, pretty much the same thing as well, you have dysthymia. We just talked about that, dysthymia, and then you full-blown depression. You're just feeling depression, depression. Okay, it's just full-blown depression. So the first one, uh, the first one, is the people who actually have type one, di uh, type one, not diabetes, type one bipolar, bi bipolar type one. Okay, so most of these folks actually feel depressed for the most part throughout their whole entire life. And then every once in a while, when they kind of cycle up here to the mania part and then come down depressed again. 
Okay, so this is type one. Type one. So the, most of the time they depress, and usually with, uh, they might they every maybe they have one or two weeks. Uh, every one or two weeks or so, they probably one week out of a month, possibly approximately they go up through this cycle of being manic going up that high when we say mania you just think of all kinds of things like behavior it's uh, kind of outrageous behavior uh, you know running streaking on the street um, pasting food on the on the wall on the tv furnitures for some reason they have a lot of obsession about cooking and food for some real reason uh, so they like to cook quite a bit when they become manic uh, or shopping spree, they go out and just spend and spend money. I went to a lady home one time where she was completely in manic stage, and she threw her stuff into the pool, into the driveway. She was pooping in in the pool as well, so just kind of sitting on the edge of the pool and just start going. So wasn't a quite um, was a quite scene to see. Um, or um, when you become really manic, you could become really, you know, hypervigilant. You just become really agitated, um, really manic. Uh, when I was living in Tucson, I got called one time uh, because one of the clients actually went to the drive-thru uh, at Burger King naked uh, and just yelling uh, all kinds of things into the speaker, uh, uh, ordering stuff while they he's naked. So, uh, so that's type one. You actually go into that mania part, really high, uh, high feelings of mania. Type two, uh, as opposite, is actually, for the most part, they actually stay hypomanic, and then they every now and then become depressed, go back, and then they stay hypomanic again, depressed again, go back up, and then become uh, hypomanic again. So they live on the hypomanic stage usually for the most part. They live on the hypomanic stage. And this stage actually very beneficial technically speaking because this is where you become so energetic. You have tons of energy. You're not to the point that you're manic that you need to go out and spend all kinds of things. But this is just you cannot sit still. Just think of you just have so much energy energy that you want to do everything in the house, clean the house, get things done. You have your checklist, to do list. You just check it all off and pretty much do everything that you need to do okay so for the most part people who have type 2 they love being in hypomanic stage love okay they love this stage they don't want to become normal they love this hypomanic stuff uh, because they get things done people love them um, you know Robin Williams was type 2 bipolar um, and his personality on on film uh, th you know that hyper manic, hypo manic type of her personality. You just have lots and lots of energy. Uh, that's um, that's a hypomania. Okay, and people love those. So you know when we give them medication, uh, mood stabilizer, they don't like to take it because that put them in the middle in, into the normal normal phase. They just don't like normal phase. So they tend to go away from that. So a lot of time they don't take medication and they only take medication when they're feeling down so they will use meth or anything that's upper to actually help bring this up like meth cocaine or 
any stimulant that actually help bring them up. The problem with that is if you bring this up to here, okay, let's say get into that normal phase, when you bring it up, when you're going back to your hypomania, you're not going back to hypomania. You're going to drive past the station. You're going to go way off top of here. You become manic a lot of times. This is what we see. And that's what some of you see in the ER as well. You know, um, normally they, if they're type 2, they're not really taking their meds and they're coming in. And next thing you know, uh, they become really manic. People bringing them in, claiming they do all kinds of weird things uh, because and they're not taking medication and they've been using meth uh, stimulants and they become really really manic uh, because of they just bring their their baseline up here um, or even up here then they're when they're going back to their normal hypomania phase they won't be able to go go back there their brain just way stimulated and become manic same thing with type 1 uh, for, for these folks they don't like to you know they don't like to take medication as well um, the life in the normal lane is kind of boring to them so um, and most of most often time these folks you know they get used to use the, the uh, stimulant to help them get back to the normal side okay if you actually use stimulant all the time like cocaine and meth all the time to feeling normal guess when you actually hit the manic stage it went off the screen it actually went off the roof so this people get really crazy this is extremely crazy you you, you hear them do kind of weird things you know uh, digging their finger into their butt pacing feces on the wall pacing feces on themselves they kind of do weird things just jump into the trash uh, trash can like way outrageous stuff um, so, so these folks, uh, they just went cuckoo for the cocoa puff. So went crazy. Okay, so a lot of time they don't like to stay in the middle. So you hear this a lot, quite a bit, you know, with people who um, who have bipolar, they tend to be dual diagnosis, meaning that they tend to use substances as well as uh, having bipolar. This is why. Treatment, uh, you guys are going to focus on those a little bit later on, but just to allude it to some of these, uh, ECT, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, we still do it today. Uh, psychiatrists are usually the one that's doing that. Uh, several places here in Phoenix are doing that. But uh, usually it's recommended for uh, for depression only. It's you really, really have to be really depressed, severely depressed to order in order to do ECT, but uh, with my experience, I've seen psychiatrists order with people who have schizophrenia, people with mood disorder, with uh, bipolar, which you're not supposed to give elect e ECT to them, but they do it anyway. Um, a little extra income every time. But uh, they do show that uh, you could lose a short-term memory, so a memory of a few days could be lost with the ECT. Uh, they do show improvement uh, in the first few session. The more you do it, the less effective it is. Um, and you also have DDS. We talk about some of those as well. Um, this is where you uh, stimulate uh, deep inside your brain. Um, and it's very effective in terms of depressed patient. Also TM TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. 
uh, also find about 75% effective. Some people, you know, works great for some, may not work at all for the other. So, uh, other brief treatment that you will talk about uh, next class in your farm class, SSRI, TCA, and MAOI. So, so these something to remember when you get to that class. Treatment for bipolar, usually uh, the key one would be lithium that we use, but if they do, you might want to measure their, watch their toxicity uh, and their, their liver function as well to see. Um, some neural uh, anticonvulsant um, agents as well we use, antipsychotic, um, if they report hearing, hearing voices, and but sometime now, uh, kind of crossover people, psychiatrists actually uh, prescribe those for this as well. ECT, uh, psychotherapy. Which food item would be most appropriate for a person taking uh, MAOI inhibitor? So you guys can pick those. The answer actually below, right in your footnote. Um, I'll stop right here. We'll actually have a video for suicide next video. Okay, welcome to part three. Uh, we're going to talk about a major uh, issue that you probably will see for the years to come. Even when you're done with, uh, with the program, you will start seeing this. Uh, this is suicide. Um, suicide has actually climbed up. Um, the top 10 list of most common deaths, cause of death here in the U.S. Um, even before the pandemic, suicide actually uh, was climbing up, I believe, to the 8th or the 7th spot now. Um, but uh, with pandemic, that's even going to be worse. You're definitely going to see that number even go up, probably going to become the 5th or the 4th. Um, fifth or the sixth cause of death here in the US so it's very important for you guys to be able to recognize um, the suicide risk um, trust me you will see this in your clinic and you should know what to do when these patients actually come into your clinic okay you no longer in a hospital where you could call social worker to come into your clinic uh, to come into your unit. Uh, same thing with the ER. If you used to work in the ER, if you have an outpatient clinic, you don't have that luxury any longer. So you need to understand what kind of things that you need to do and be able to assess and realize of what you need to do from it. Okay. So the first one. Um, okay, so the first thing that you probably will need to look at when you when you hear people actually telling you that they are suicidal, first one is that you need to really being direct. Okay, don't beat around the bush. Uh, just being direct, asking them, you know, are you really truly feeling suicidal? Okay, ask all of the detail. Don't leave anything out in a vague or not disclosed. You just want to open up everything and talk about everything. Okay, so uh, first you will you will need to ask them. Okay, so 
and most often time they they you need to distinguish between the passive versus active okay passive versus active um, so passive you have passive si passive si versus active si what's the difference between those two passive is like you know what i wish i could i don't live i'm you know i wish i don't breathe anymore i wish i'm not here i wish i could die i wish i no longer here and face this kind of problem that's passive you're not directly saying that you want to kill yourself uh, active would be i want to die i want to die right now i'm i just fed up with my life and i'd rather die that's active that's more direct uh, that they're actually showing you that they have um, they're really really serious about this um, but even those two people could actually use those statements uh, to get attention as well a lot of time people could be intoxicated and which most of the time they are uh, when they become depressed and suicidal they're usually intoxicated with something uh, for the most part not all of them but for the most of them um, so they may saying especially men when 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 they become intoxicated from alcohol they may be saying you know i wish i i'm done with this life i'm i'm i don't want to live anymore i just want to kind of just fall asleep and you know and and everything is done so that's passive si okay but ev even then you know they may say that while they intoxicated while they're drunk but when once they sober they like i don't remember saying any of those i'm, I'm not suicidal so uh, so keep that in mind so you have passive versus active once they ask when once you hear this you need to ask them and ask them repeatedly are you suicidal are you saying that you wanting to kill yourself are you saying that you want to end your life you won't you do you know what that means okay kind of reassure what they actually said reassure their statement what they actually said next you want to actually ask about the plan okay well i'm suicidal but i don't have any plan oh yes i have a plan i have a plan and then you want to ask them what kind of plan is that what kind of specific plan the the more specific the plan um, the higher the risk you're gonna have the risk goes up okay um, if they have a very specific plan that they want to do uh, that the risk actually goes up the risk for them to kill themselves is higher you ask about about the plan they're like mm, i don't know i don't really have one um not right not right now anyway it's i just feeling you know um passive suicide but i don't have any plan so uh in that case most of the time you know you would just completely waste your time or um you the you know the, the hospital time because most likely they'll go in for one or two days and they'll come out okay and it has to be voluntary so before they go into hospital they have to be voluntary okay so first you have to ask them about the plan next is the specific any any specific plan that they have then you could go into the um you know you could look at here the ideation question the kind of ideas uh, 
do they have any uh, specific ideas um, can you describe the the uh, recent thought you have been having uh, when did your thoughts begin and how often you have these these thoughts so to kind of reassure that you know they're truly having the suicidal ideation and how long has it been going on is it often is it once a day is it all the time um, so how long has this been going on okay uh, so and then once you actually ask about the plan then you need to ask them to describe the plan um, you want to uh, assess whether they have any means meaning that do they have any means to completing the plan so if they'd say oh yeah i want to uh, walk out in a desert and let the vulture actually eat me um you know well they have planned but is the is the plan likely to happen do they have the mean no they don't have the means well you know i'm just gonna take a bus into out to the desert and then just walk around there and let you know dehydration set in since it's like 106 outside today um, so that's really you know uh, vague like low means that's what we is um that the mean is not that high or is that great of a risk uh, but if they're saying i want to shoot myself and i have guns at home yes there's actually a high means uh, you actually have a more likely chance of completing a higher risk of actually completing that suicide okay so asking them for these means whether they actually have a mean to to do these um Ask them if they do say the gun. Usually, is that's the most common mean for men to actually use. Uh, if they do that, ask them: Do they have a gun safe? Is that gun locked, secure? And most of them saying probably no. I just have a gun lying around. Um, but some responsible owner, they do have a safe. They do have a lock. And then you need to ask: Like, is, can someone else in your home make sure that those those are locked and you don't have access to those? if you want to send them home so please make sure to keep that in mind okay so talk to to talk to their loved ones make sure you actually mention that otherwise you are responsible for them okay so the means um, and then the very important one is the intent uh, do they have an intent do they have um, specific plan in, in near the future yeah I'm gonna kill myself tomorrow at 3 43 p.m. Um, because that's the uh, the the time that you know our marriage uh, kind of an anniversary of our marriage and uh, is tomorrow and I'm gonna kill myself then because now I'm divorced. Uh, my wife doesn't love me anymore and that's why I'm uh, gonna kill myself then. So um, become very very specific. So uh, that's the that's the intent that show you that that other person have um, something to carry out but also a specific time and date for them to to go through with this um, for the most part and this is a true story for the most part I mean if if someone and kill themselves it's almost impossible for you to stop them to kill themselves almost impossible but when they actually reach out when they actually mention things to you does mean they Lily uh, reaching out could be your you could be the last resort 
for them and try you know please try not to ignore all of these um, so uh, resource that they're actually trying to reach out uh, one true case uh, one real case I had a I had a um, I had a, a gentleman who actually at the time he worked at at University of Phoenix and his wife actually uh, filed for divorce um, two kids wife kind of complained that he's never take care of you know kids at all when he come back from work he's in IT come back from work and he would just go back and go up to his his room you know playing computer playing video game all day long and then go to sleep eat go to sleep and next day go to work not really paying attention to the wife and kids whatsoever so and she had it after like uh, five ten years actually probably ten years um, she had it with the marriage so and he became very depressed when the wife actually told him that and they were kind of going through the process of divorce they haven't actually divorced yet um, so um, so he planned the whole thing he actually went out and um, bought the um, the the rifle at Walmart and waited uh, until the wife actually took a, a week a weekend break went up to Sedona and then the kids was at the grandparents um, that's when he actually wrote all the notes uh, wrote really long note about how he just feel bad about what he did and he actually kind of managing cleaning up his finance everything wrote everything down in, in the paper you know how which money goes where pay off what you know debt and whatnot so he kind of uh, wrote everything down onto the paper and also um, he actually was thoughtful enough uh, because he's gonna shoot himself he was gonna sh trying to shoot himself in the bathtub so no one else have to clean up the mess of the me his the mess will be a little bit easier to clean uh, but what happened was uh, he actually sat in the bathtub for two hours with the gun in his mouth with the rifle in his mouth he was intoxicated he was actually trying to you know drink some alcohol to, to get some courage to do to do so but he sat there for two hours couldn't pull the trigger and that's when he called his wife and then told, told her what's what he's doing um, and the wife actually called police. Police got to his home, and long behold, uh, they found all of those evidence. So, um, so technically speaking, like I said, if if someone actually wanted to do this, um, it would be hard for you to actually stop them from doing. But if they do come out and talk to you about it, uh, I want you guys to be aware, you know, that you what what kind of things you need to go through and do to to make sure that um, that you cover all your bases you cover all of the stuff and one other thing to add on here is the history of suicide if you have a history of suicide before uh, more likely you will commit it again and a lot of time people actually don't they, they're not aware of this is that um, you know yeah I, I deal with this quite a bit and when I talk to them, you know, I talk, you know, you most of these people when they think that they gonna kill themselves, 
they think it's only gonna affect themselves and you know that they just kill themselves no one else gonna have to worry about care about uh, that's it but in actuality it's not uh, because if you kill yourself the chances are uh, that there are 50% more likely that your loved ones will actually attempt just attempt to commit suicide as well okay even you you even you attempting if you just com trying to commit suicide even though you're not completed um, there's a 50% chance that your kid your son your your loved ones your brother your sister your family member your mom your dad your your son your daughter uh, that they one day will actually trying to commit suicide as well and if you complete it if you complete your suicide that chance become 100% that 100% that one of your family member will commit trying to commit suicide and more likely they will complete it as well okay uh, it's a social learning model so you um, by having one person uh, com commit suicide a completed suicide it's a guarantee that someone else in the family will commit suicide and complete suicide as well okay and a lot of time I ask them that you know I tell them that and I ask them you know how would you feel even though you're already dead you're already long gone and we don't know it, depending on your belief of where you're gonna be going so but how are you gonna feel if looking back that you when you kill yourself it caused a chain reaction for other people to kill themselves as well that's a big huge question that usually people you know don't say it don't talk about it as much uh, and not aware when they trying to commit suicide you know uh, that when you see these folks again um, after life whatnot um, how would you what would you say to them because knowing that you're the one that causing them to kill themselves okay so uh, that's something that a lot of these folks uh, do not think about you know they they think a short-term plan they, they don't think uh, that you know what they do could affect other people but for your stand for for, uh, for who you uh, for as a clinician as a doctor as a nurse practitioner what you need to remember is when these people step in your office it is your responsibility um, is your reliability and when you leave uh, if you let if you were to let them go home uh, is, is your life your, your liability uh, what happened to them afterward uh, one thing that I do recommend um, you, know, you could call uh, someone to come out do assessment but it takes a long time it takes about two hours before someone will come to your office okay and you may sometimes you may not have that time um, and you could try to do these assessment yourself if again if they have passive SI no plan no means no intent whatsoever uh, you could have them do what we call a con um, contract for safety so they could actually write a contract for safety saying that they would not hurt themselves or other people um, and you know they you could make sure that you call your their family member to make sure that they someone will watch them you know all the time 24 7 that someone will be there with them and if the conditions worse they could take them to the hospital 
okay so you know you do everything you can to make sure that you cover all your bases otherwise you become liable for their action okay but if they have active SI have a plan you know I would highly recommend sending them to the hospital um, send, 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 sending them to the ER or a psych unit uh, if you know psych unit uh, you could send them there as well a uh, good number to have um, for um, for your resources uh, crisis line this is number two 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 nine four 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 so if you need someone to go out your crisis mobile team to go out this is for Maricopa County every county in, in the state has this so you could you know find out the number if you're gonna practice a different state different city find out the number what they what those numbers are uh, if you know when you have your practice your own practice uh, these for here in Phoenix and Maricopa County so anywhere in your in Maricopa County you could call this to these numbers here this is a good resource to have um, for people who need like uh, help assistant with APS SRP uh, even homeless shelters um, all kinds of resources if you're gonna work for access uh, or you know um, county hospital things like that good access to have you don't want to wait for you know social worker those folks sometimes if you have your own you know information you could refer that to them okay pretty easy to do okay I know I should talk about uh, long video so let's end this one here and we'll get to next one next video okay folks um, next chapter is anxiety disorder okay anxiety disorder this is the most common illnesses uh, comparing to the previous one um, there's could be up to 33 percent about a third of population actually affecting from this um, but a lot of time this is the least treated one as well so even though you have a lot of people have anxiety disorder but a lot of people do not get treatment for them um, so well, um, we'll talk about all of these also knowing this is the old PowerPoint knowing that this one uh, right now actually according to DSM-5 it has its own category this doesn't belong in stress um, anxiety diso disorder any longer actually in stress disorder uh, stress and post-traumatic stress disorder category they have their they have its own category at this point but we'll talk about all of this stuff okay the first one is panic disorder panic is panic attack so just thinking of all the physical symptoms so when you think of panic disorder think of physical symptom palpitation of the heart um, rapid breathing difficulty breathing um, the uh, kidney basically um, sweating you know trembling so more all, all the physical symptom physical stuff um, keep in mind that you could have this um, anytime anywhere and also de depending on you, you some people have it like kind of mild all the time they have anytime they have anxiety provoking situation they often have it uh, just kind of come up for uh, you know for for the most part 
Um, it could could be complication of other things as well, like you have certain phobias. Um, sometimes I say you have um, social phobias or even uh, agoraphobias going outside. It may trigger that. Or some people have phobias over height, like um, going over bridges. They're afraid of bridges. Uh, they have phobias about bridges. They don't. They don't like to go up in a tall, tall bridges, and they may have anxiety, panic attack. You know, while they're on those bridges as well. Very common for women to go through that. Uh, cause uh, there's different causes. Um, could be genetics, um, speaking, or um, could be CCK, cholecystokinin receptor gene. Um, panicogen, um, physical symptom, um, ben benzodiazepine, uh, so go receptor going down, so could cause that as well. So there's all kinds of cause, but these usually treat very well with um, SSRI, benzodiazepine, or even you know therapy when you're going through therapy they actually have different techniques and ways to combat panic attacks so next one is called social phobia social phobia this is when you um, this is uh, when you just don't like to go out you don't like to deal with um, people large amount of people uh, doesn't mean that they don't like people period they do like a small group of people they like you know they have their close friend one or two friend and they hang out with their friend their loved ones or whatnot but they don't they're not a big fan of going to the concert with 20,000 people jam-packed like sardines uh, in their in the venue no they, they're not a big fan of that so uh, so social phobia they have these fear them trying to avoid any type of social situation so a small gathering that's fine with them but let's say anything larger than five or ten people that could be a problem for them okay um, treatment again you could use SSRI therapy works really well with that uh, this is one of the more common one com common than those two that I just mentioned uh, this is called GAD. This is generalized anxiety disorder. Um, nurses probably know about this category really well. Um, this is where this is when you have worries all the time. You just kind of constantly worries. Um, I always say this that you know when you worries you always worries about the future. When you people have anxiety, they just worry about something that hasn't happened yet. Whereas depression, when you're depressed, you tend to dwell on the past. You just kind of keep thinking about the past all the time. Uh, so those are kind of two opposite ends. So when you have anxiety, you just kind of feel worry about, you know, think everything, just about everything. You know, go taking a new class. Oh, uh, how is the quiz going to be like? How is this midterm going to be like? How is the final is going to be? How is that proctor you going to come about? Um, what about this? What about this? What about that? So it's you have this constant what if? What is this? What is that? What about this? Uh, how is this going to happen? So you constantly worry about your whole entire life, even while you you know taking the test, 
all of these is actually you have these constant anxiety all the time, 24-7. This doesn't mean that you actually have the panic disorder. This doesn't mean you actually have a panic attack. So people could be worried about all of these all the time, but doesn't mean you actually have the physical symptom. Uh, when you worry, yes, you put your heart rate probably goes up. Uh, you might be stressed. Your blood pressure probably goes through the roof. But you may not feel palpitation. You may not be sweating all the time. You may not shake or tremble all the time. You just kind of constantly concerned or worry about things all the time. Okay, concerned or worry about things all the time. So, uh, treatment we use serotonin. Usually works really well. Um, Xanax works well too as well. Um, but keep in mind, and this is something to remember as well. Um, FDA only recommends Xanax as a short-term use. Um, you're supposed to prescribe for only for six months to a year. You don't want to prescribe more than two years. And unfortunately, um, that's even though that's a recommendation of FDA, uh, most doctors, uh, even psychiatrists, will prescribe Xanax, uh, prescribe for a lot longer than two years. Um, it loses its efficacy. It actually creates a higher tolerance and um, patient will actually become more addictive and you need to prescribe larger dose. Um, I had, and this is a true story, when I work in mental health, I seen a nurse coming in uh, and literally she's actually used about 20 bars, 20, 20 bars. Okay, put that in perspective. Uh, 10 milligram of Xanax equal to one bar. Okay. 10 milligram of Xanax equal to one bar. You're using 20 bars a day. There's something wrong with you. So if if I were you know, just personally, if I were to take just a one milligram Xanax, that would knock me out and then I would probably wake up two days later. Okay? If I'm still alive. Um but you know, she, this girl, was actually on twenty bars of Xanax. Um, so I don't, I don't know. First of all, I don't know who prescribed that, and second, I don't know how she's actually still staying up and walking around at the time. So, um, so be careful when you when you prescribe those things in the future, and when you have your license and practicing. So make sure you don't want to prescribe that high of amount uh, with any patient and if they are that high it's gonna be hard for them really hard for them to to detox off of those you can de you cannot detox 20 bars of Xanax in three days okay you would die okay so most likely you have to taper that off through P PCP or uh, psychiatrist you have to taper that down way down uh, before you could uh, do a detox for them and most of the time, they don't even. They, if if someone who's going up that high, they don't want to taper it down. But with twenty bars, you about to you 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 could die. You could you could die just about any time, any day. So. Uh, the other one uh, is PTSD. PTSD is post traumatic stress disorder. Post traumatic stress. Um, this is when you have flashbacks and nightmares. Um. You diagnose this through clinical. 
again this is they would have to go through any trauma um, traumatizing event traumatizing event doesn't mean they have to go out to war and see all this horror and bodies everywhere um just any event including divorce like really bad relationship bad breakup divorce or bad fights could actually cause ptsd let's say you fight to the point that you bleed you crack your skull uh, you shot each other i mean those could be very traumatic events that could cause ptsd for the rest of your life okay so that's something to remember that it's not just war causing this even even now uh, i mean with the pandemic that we're having um, you you know you might see cases of ptsd goes up because people could see their you know may not see their loved one die in a hospital they could become traumatic for them the one that who lives um or you know people who uh, you know going through you know, like even yourself you know uh, medical professionals you know working through this pandemic and seeing things that you don't usually see you seeing patient dying left and right three or four patients a night uh, four or five patients dying from you every day uh, that could cause ptsd you know so a lot of these things can become ptsd so keep in mind that it's not just a you know wartime kind of mentality or things that actually happen but it could be anything um, medication we use benzos tcas and also ssri but more likely uh, group therapy uh, the one of the most effective one is called um, um, it's not cbt is emdr this is the most effective therapy for ptsd this is called eye movement desensitization and reconciliation okay eye movement desensitization and reconciliation so not all therapists could do this there's actually certain therapists who, who was uh, trained and certified in doing emdr and what it is kind of in a gist that when you and you could you could use this with your kids um, works really well with kids um, even kids and adults work pretty much the same so when when we when we kind of dwell on certain feelings let's say when you feel sad when you think about the time that you feel sad think about the time that you crying what happened to your eyes okay your eyes actually tend to fixate into one spot uh, when our eyes actually fixate your brain doesn't process things you just kind of dwell on that feelings dwell on that emotions um, so in this research uh, started in berkeley um, they developed this uh, right after uh, oklahoma bombing right around that time and they use it there and they use it 9-11 uh, and also uh, everywhere else uh, after ptsd so it shows that if you actually start moving that person's eyes back and forth back and forth back and forth uh, the brain start to process the information why do, why are you feeling sad um, you know and you could use this like I said next time with your kids you know if you have especially like four or five year olds and this they're about to start to cry they're right about to, uh, they're about to cry start crying you know you could put the finger in front of them and just move back and left and right left and right and tell them to wash your fingers you know i guarantee you within 10 seconds af after they keep watching your finger going back and left and right they will stop crying their brain will start processing like why am i crying i have no reason to be crying at this point 
they stop crying right away. They process their thoughts, they process their feelings, and they stop crying. Okay, so try that. Uh, it's worked amazingly. So, okay, you guys could answer this question. Uh, last one I believe is o OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, this is you have two components. You have the obsession and compulsion. Obsession is the thoughts. Compulsion is the behaviors. So uh, obsession is mean you just keep thinking over and over and over again, and compulsion is mean you're doing it over and over and over again. So you could have like germaphobe, people who are afraid of germs, washing their hands. Usually, a lot of these have odd numbers for some reason. They usually use odd numbers, so they use three, five, seven, or nine. They wash their hand three times, five times, seven times, or nine times. They kiss each other three times before they leave the house. They turn their keys, car keys, uh, three times, four times, five times before they start the car. So um, they have these odd numbers in their head. Um, they have hoarding. You've probably seen those a little bit. So um, some of you might be a hoarder. So if, if you have all kinds of stuff in your home, um, you know, it's, o it's okay to throw things away. It's okay to sing, let it go let it go so just keep throwing that away you don't need to keep things inside your home um, the hoarders uh, are really hard to treat because you cannot just throw things away for them uh, it becomes traumatized for them so you really have to work with them for them to throw things away by themselves and you really have to you know convince them that they, they have no use for those things um, they kind of create a attached uh, emotional bond with the things that they keep. So, okay. Um, also, with these folks, um, they they could be you know could have different group as well. They could have uh, one group called trichotillomania. Uh, this is part of anxiety disorder and part of OCD. This is where they pull out their hair. Um, they, 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 they just have so much anxiety, they just pull out their hair. You might see these in teenage girls, uh, usually will come up with these. Um, pull out their hair, their eyelashes, their eyebrow, or even their leg hair, pubic hair as well. Okay, So if they don't like, um, they just have this compulsion of pulling things out. So OCD, technically speaking, OCD, you actually lack of serotonin you don't have enough serotonin actually no technically speaking and this is wrong uh, technically speaking you have lack of control and serotonin control but technically speaking you actually have too much serotonin in your body you have way too much serotonin in your body because you cannot control it um, you have high level of serotonin um, but amazingly the treatment is actually give them SSRI kind of overload their system and then hopefully the system shuts down kind of same idea with uh, ADHD when you prescribe Ritalin with the patient but uh, SSRI you actually use this to help shut down the system that's the FDA recommended treatment using SS SSRI uh, you could have benzo antipsychotic as well CBT uh, to help some of these and that's conclude the PowerPoint from the mental illness. If you have any questions, please let me know.
Okay, welcome to the pathophysiology of pain and opioid addiction. Okay, pathophysiology of pain and opioid addiction. So first we're going to define what pain is. Uh, pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotion experience. Okay, and um, pain is can be very protective. So in order for you to have you know, uh, pain is actually a good thing. It's actually make you aware of the safety around surrounding uh, the environment that you are in. Kind of help you be aware of what's going on. Imagine if you couldn't feel anything at all in your arms or legs. Uh, you walk around not feeling any pain or any sensation. Uh, you could enjoy yourself pretty easily. Okay, so pain in some sense has this connection that you could connect to this environmental surrounding that you being a part of that world uh, as weird as it may sound but it does and this is what you see oftentimes when you you have people this uh, using a lot of narcotics not to feel pain they become disconnect they become disconnect to the world around them you know when they when they actually regain when they go through the detox and they start feeling pain again you know I always tell them you know welcome back welcome back to the to this world this world is not that pleasant this not it's all nice and roses all the time so welcome back it's is almost pain when you feel pain it's part of your living being being a human um, because it's kind of have that interconnection, uh, physical, cognitive, spiritual, emotional, to the world that um, were built for us, um, the world that we live in, it has that connection into one. There are there are several theories of pain, and a lot of them are not quite. I mean, you have these pacifist, pacifist. I can't ever say it, but. Um, you know, these these uh, these doesn't really uh, address all aspect of pain. Same thing with the pattern theories as well. So you guys could look through these. Um, the closer one is called the gate control theory. Gate control theory talks about a couple of things. One is that you have these complex system going on in your brain and your spinal cord complex system that it has the stimulus and also works as an inhibitor so work kind of both hand in hand okay and um, with the gate system is saying that you have a large myelinated a delta fiber and small unmyelinated c fiber respond to a broad range of pain stimuli such, such as chemical mechanical ke uh, thermal and chemical so you have these uh, these nerve fibers kind of work together and some of them work as an inhibitory some of them actually work as a stimulus so um, these kind of work together to for you to be able to feel these type of pain mechanical thermal and chemical type of pain whereas you have the non-nociceptive transmission through large larger a beta fiber uh, this is the closed gate system uh, meaning that's that's the shutting things down. You have the, um, you have 
can kind of inhibitory type of effects. There's also other theories like neural matrix theories uh, that different different part of your brain kind of expanding on the gate control theory that's kind of explaining the more your nerve input to your spinal cord but this is more in, in, in your brain that's a certain time your brain has this plasticity where you could adapt to the change of the environmental change in your brain your brain could kind of adapt and this is very easy you know seen with with noise uh, pollution so let's say you know you live if you live uh, you bought a house or rent a home next to the train tracks you may hear that train tracks every night waking up at three o'clock in the morning i remember when i went to medical school my um, the house was kind of next to a train track down in tempe and three o'clock the train would come and i would wake up the first week that during during that first week but after the first week my brain just shut that voice down pretty much didn't hear it at all just sleep through the night so um, your brain kind of make that pla plasticity where you adapt to certain condition to certain pain certain certain feelings um, this is when you know people who being numb by you know by um, feelings um, um, they use pain as as like people who cut like the cutters uh, when they trying to kill themselves by cutting their arm legs whatnot um, they use pain to actually feel again because they feel like they just feel numb from their feeling they they just feel depressed all the time for to, to the point that they feel numb so that they want uh, some stimuli to actually start feeling the p feeling that emotion again um, or even with people who um, those are serial killers uh, those serial killers um, um, they uh, they enjoy amazingly I don't know how they do but they enjoy uh, seeing people expression when they're trying to kill them because that's to them that's emotion because they couldn't feel their own pain they couldn't feel their emotion and a lot of them actually have a really high pain tolerance um they couldn't they couldn't feel that Im that feelings all the time so they enjoy watching people facial expressions screaming yelling being in pain they feel like wow my life actually become alive again because they they love to see that kind of torture so um that has some sense of your brain is kind of adapt to if you have that pain for a long time your brain could change pattern to adapt to those things um, neural anatomy of pain you actually have the uh, PNS which is the peripheral nervous system from your you know fingers your toes going into your central nervous system okay and this is huge thing to to remember um, you know this is one of the things that works really well with these is acupuncture if you actually or, or acupressure if you guys ever tried those uh, works amazingly well with pain and the idea is um, you don't have to treat the pain at the location that you feel let's say let's let's per se uh, let's say you have a headache you don't actually need to put a needle in your head just to stop the headaches 
you could actually press on your between your thumb and your index finger to actually control your headaches or your back pain um, because you have these neural pathways uh, it actually crosses at the same location that where those things cross for example if you have a knee problem you don't actually have to you have a knee pain you don't have to put a needle in your knee not necessary you could actually put a needle in your elbow um, yes, your elbow, your your anticubitals or your elbow area um, on the side of your anticubital or elbow area to actually treat the pain in your in your knee, and it would be the opposite side too as well. Uh, if you have a right knee pain, you could actually have that tenderness on your el on your left elbow. Uh, if you have a left uh, left angle pain, uh, you may have a right shoulder tenderness uh, to correspond to that. So a lot of times, you don't need to treat the pain where the location it is, and a lot of a lot of pain management doctors usually treat pain in their back, in the spine. Okay, uh, you have this interpretation center, which is where the pain, what the the information comes in desiccate. One of the location is kind of desiccate, meaning that going from one side to the other side. Uh, remember, everything has to go from, let's say you have a pain on your right side, it has to go to the left side of your brain. So certain spot in your brain that does desiccate one first part, some pain actually desiccate at the, uh, the same level of your spine, and some actually at the brain stem. Okay. You also have the efferent pathway as well. Um, there's different phases of pain you could have transduction okay where is the signal coming in uh, transmission carrying along the signal uh, the ca the cable think of the your your spinal cord uh, perception how you actually aware of the pain and modulations how you uh, the intensity of coming in whether it's increased or le uh, less depending on the person uh, this is kind of the explanation of the pain um, kind of brief quick explanation that you could see here you have the myelinated a delta fiber these are the fast transmission okay unmyelinated c uh, those are mechanical thermal and chemical nociceptor and usually they are slower dull aching type of burning pain and beta fiber are the large myelin fi myelinate fibers they usually transfer touch, vibration, and sensation. So. And there are secondary order and third order uh, neural um, affects. So you, you guys could review these. Uh, pain threshold and tolerance. This is a two big key things to remember. One is threshold, meaning that how. Uh, how the lowest intensity that you could actually feel of those pain, okay, the lowest intensity, so the, the amount that you will notice, let's put it this way, the amount that you actually become noticed that you do have pain, okay, and pain tolerance uh, is, is the highest amount, the max amount that you could feel, okay, in terms of pain. Uh, most people have certain, you know, varies, pain is very subjective, meaning that some people have different threshold, different tolerance to the pain. The longer you have those pain, the longer you become more tolerant to the pain as well. Okay. 
Um, and we're going to talk about, uh, so like I said before, there's some pain that could be inhibiting um, and some could be kind of like adding on to one another as well. Okay, the A beta fiber, if it comes in with A delta or, or C fiber, oftentimes become inhibiting type of neuron, type of pain. Um, pain also has to do with uh, GABA. Uh, there's GABA and glycine that also inhibit pains as well. So nice, help kind of smooth out the pain. The endorphins uh, also help inhibit pains when you really high have a t adrenaline rush. You don't feel pain at, at all. Like I said, some pain does cross right at when it comes in right here. Some does stay on the same side to go up to your brain, and that you know at where it desiccates, it actually have could be, you know, your elbow could be run run cross at the same location as your knee, your left elbow and your right knee. So could might be crossing at the same time. Okay, clinical description of pain. So there's different type of pain, nociceptive pain. These are the nociceptive type of pain, non-nociceptive. And then you have the classification based on acute or chronic. Acute, meaning that's happened right away. Uh, you're just experiencing pain now. Like you fall, you hit your knee, you have the pain right then and there. Um, uh, chronic, that's mean you have more longer than three months. You can't constantly having that pain for more than, more than three months. Also, you have refer pain where uh, the actual location is one location, but you feel it at different points. Uh, for instance, you have heart attack, you could feel in the back or on your left arm. Uh, you have liver problem, could be on your shoulder or toward the back side. Uh, small intestine. Uh, could be right in the middle so uh, depending on the pain you could have it at different parts chronic usually is um, at least at least three months or more um, usually your brain you're going to have neuroplasticity meaning that you actually will kind of adapt to those pain there's different type of pains neuropathic pain this is, has to do with your nerve endings you could feel like burning shocking type of pain we talked about uh, hermit sign on the other the other day with MS that could be part of neuropathic pain uh, chronic pain syndrome uh, you could have different chronic pain syndrome uh, MPS cancer pain all of those phantom limbs those are different type of pain syndrome and pediatrics as well. You could look at their facial expression in terms of pain um, and you would, you hear the different cry as well. A lot of time they have a higher, louder pitch cry when, they, when they're in pain. Uh, opioid use, huge things to remember. Um, actually, we'll stop video right here, so too long. Okay, folks, let's talk about the opioid use and addiction. This is going to be huge because you probably will see this more than anything else. Um, 
in your practice and it's based on your belief and values as well in terms of uh, these things so and <coughs> okay so op opioids uh, definitely can affect your your emotion your feelings and your sense of pain as well so it does block the pain pain messages so you don't feel pain okay so there's a specific um, binding site that actually these um, these uh, the opioid actually works uh, it kind of replaced themselves um, block to um, block those sites so then you won't have the stimulus to send to your brain uh, that you have these any of these pains at all okay so the first thing that they cover this is the the kind of disclaimer that I want to use uh, this is the older PowerPoint that that the college actually still using but um, they want to for you to know the differences between dependence versus addiction okay dependence uh, um, versus addiction and uh, sadly with the new DSM-5 they don't use these terms anymore Okay, so technically speaking, they do not use any of these terms anymore. But I guess uh, this is um, what what the nursing board was looking for. So we need to talk about them. So a lot of time people you know, talk about dependence versus addiction. Um, a lot of times in DSM-4 back then, we tend to use the word dependence more than addiction. Okay, more than addiction. Um, dependence meaning that you are a person actually depending on a substance you let's say for, for instance there's different kind of dependence as well uh, there's there's a dual dependence versus abuse okay dependence versus abuse so abuse meaning that you just want to get wasted you just do tons and tons of drugs or alcohol you just abusing it because you just do it in one setting okay you could have those people coming in ER like kids were half dead um, trying alcohol for the first time and couldn't couldn't handle the drink and you know the, their BL went up to 0 0.2 0 0.3 um, they almost die uh, but that's the abuse because they use it one time okay that's the abuse um, Whereas dependence, uh, dependence is that you need it in order to live and you would need it for you to be able to function in your daily life. So let's say if you are a type of person that who definitely when you come home, you would need a glass of alcohol, a glass of wine, a couple of cans of beers just to wind down, just to be able to be okay. That's called dependence. Okay, so that is as bad as being abusive, right? being, you know, abusing the alcohol, drinking to the point that you almost die. With the dependence, the dependence usually it will grow. It's actually more chronic than it takes a longer time, but it will grow. It could be, you, can't, you might start with one glass of wine. Okay, next thing you know, you have two glasses every night. Next thing you know, you have three glasses every night. Okay, so it grows in terms of 
then if for some people and you some people might say you know what you know I, I drink but you know and ask yourself this question can you stop and then still feel normal still feel good about that day so can you come home one day and normally you would drink and then you would have one a glass of wine or a couple of cans of beer if one day you come home and you don't have it would you be okay and if it, the answer is no then you have dependence issue if the answer is no then you do have a problem that you haven't dealt with okay so um, some most people don't think that you know having a glass of wine is is a bad thing well it's not really truly but if you is if you are depending on it if you depending on having it to feel better then it's become a problem if you're depending on it to have it and so you could feel normal again that's become a problem so um, drinking it is not the, the act of drinking but what are you drinking it for it's become an issue if you're drinking it for just for fun if you just for a party once in every, every blue moon you go out you party you drink that's one one thing but if you continuing to drink it to feel better to make your life normal to feel like normal that's not that's whole different things okay so that's not normal um, again you using despite the use continue to use despite the development of negative outcome including physical psychological interpersonal problem resulting from use so and a lot of a lot of time is this one that usually come up with is interpersonal that when you drink you actually have problems with people around you okay if and and this also to go you know some people like let's say some couple you know a husband might be drinking the wife is not um, does not drink and then you might have this conflict and then you ask the wife the wife will tell you that yes he does have problem of, of drinking if you trust the person the husband the husband say oh no I have no clue what you're talking about I don't have any problem of drinking whatsoever ever I just drink every night but then the wife noticing the mood changes the, uh, the, the you know the, the cut the fights the arguments uh, things like that come along with drinking and that's become a problem that's an interpersonal problem also the other interpersonal problem that you can see is when you have two people both of them drinks together both of them uh, become dependent on the same thing so if you actually have this couple coming home every night and both of them will actually have three four cans of beer every night just to have a relationship with one another so you building your relationship on Budweiser that's not good or Bud Light that's not good or Miller High Life in order to have a high life you need the Miller to actually telling you what to do uh, that's not good so you're actually building your relationship upon you become depending dependent on on these uh, substance for you to have a interpersonal relationship okay uh, most people oftentimes refer this as addiction but uh, again addiction is 
technically speaking, is not a uh, is not um, is is not a diagnosis. First of all, and you could have addiction without the physical dependence. Okay, you could have addiction. Uh, what do what do I mean by that? And some people, some people, and this is you're gonna see this a lot a lot in in Hispanic family where the the guy actually go out and work throughout the whole entire week. Okay, completely fine, completely completely fine, but yet you know on the weekend. This is they slam. They get slammed basically Friday night, uh, fiesta time. Uh, you know, start drinking that Corona like crazy. Uh, some cheap beers depend. Um, just start drinking and com completely wasted the whole entire weekend. Completely, you just wasted the whole entire weekend. And then Monday morning comes. Um, you get become sober. You you stop drinking the whole entire week. Stop drinking the whole entire whole entire week. Um, that's the addiction portion. You know they'll become addicted to it, um, and may not see those. May not be. May, may not seem like as a dependence because you only use it once a week. But when you use it, you use it in such a large quantity quantity uh, that could cause a problem. Okay. And again, you have the word torrents uh, that come in uh, to play. Torrents uh, referring to that um, the drugs ex itself have the highest effects the first time when you use it. The first time when you use the drugs is the torrents. Um, when um, when the drugs, um, you need to use more and more and more to feel the same way, to feel the same level that you felt before. So, okay. So that's torrents. So you need to use more. So you become kind of numb, and desensitized, almost. Um, and you need to use. You become dependent. So you kind of go in that cycle. Um, we're gonna skip this because again, uh, we don't use this anymore. Um, I'm gonna show you this one instead. DSM five. This we stop using the word abuse. We stop using the word dependence. We actually use substance use. Period. You have you you either use substance or you don't use substance. You uh, you if you use it, it's called substance use. Um, substance use. Uh, these are the classification. You will have torrents. You probably will go through withdrawal. The only one that you that technically the medical expert and also insurance are concerning with is the alcohol withdrawal. That's the only one that could kill you. You could have withdrawals from meth, you could have withdrawal from cocaine, you could have withdrawals from uh, weed, but those are not life-threatening. Okay, You will not die from it. And including, including opiates. You, you will not die from withdrawing from opiates. Yes, you will be in an, a lot of pain. Is is it comfortable? No, it's not. Is painful? Yes. Uh, most insurance might cover one or two times of detox of opioid detox, and that's it. And they will not cover any more. Um, and most often time, the opioid detox patient, uh, people who are on narcotics, pain narcotics, they're pretty smart. They're really smart. A lot of them are. 
in and they time it right too as well a lot a lot of them overuse it they overuse the uh, their medication so they run out a lot sooner and they know they cannot go go and get more medication because it's not time yet so they would go in to the psych unit and claiming that they want to detox from their opiate use and they would get little nice subutex or methadone shots uh, while they're in the hospital for three to four days, five days, whatever that might be. And then once they come out, they get ready again for the next round. Once they um, timing it right, uh, so they could go get their prescription the very d same day or next day and then start using opiates again. So so just keep those in mind. They, you, you will see some of those patients as well. If you start prescribing um, op opioids, uh, you may see that. Okay. Um, so, and we do separate this time. We do separate into mild, moderate, and severe symptom, and based on how many symptoms you have. Mild, you only have two to three. Moderate, four to five, and severe, you have six and more. So, okay. So we no longer use a lot of these terms before. But we just use substance use disorder, whatever that substance might be, like alcohol use disorder, or opioid use disorder, or cocaine use disorder, stimulant use disorder. So we use that term instead. Okay, we don't say that you are dependence versus abuse versus addiction. We don't use any of those anymore. So, okay. So uh, withdrawals, uh, you're definitely going to wi be withdrawals, like I said, uh, you could have withdrawals. The most uh, concerned one is the alcohol withdrawals. Um, personally speaking, well, not personally, but clinically speaking, um, from putting medical hats and also counsel counselor hat on, um, with, with um, the most dangerous drug is actually alcohol. Um, because that's the one you could overdose. You could also kill yourself by withdrawing as well. If you stop completely cold turkey, you could die from withdrawal from alcohol. Uh, and it's th by far is the drugs the only one that kill more than more people than the rest of the drugs combined. But yet, it's the only one that's legal at this point. So. Uh, so alcohol technically is the most dangerous drugs um, of all. So of all drugs that we have, alcohol is the dangerous, the most dangerous one. Um, uh, and and you said how how do people usually die from it? You could say from you know overdosing it, overusing it. Intoxication could cause a lot of things, including you know driving behavior. Um, hitting other people, killing yourself from driving it as well. So so opioid use disorder is something you're definitely going to be dealing with quite a bit. Um, large amount of taking the drug lo uh, over a longer period of time intended. Um, so you, you they, keep, they keep on using the drug, so they use more than they prescribe. Um, and there are actually there are network ne network of people um, 
actually become what we call epidemic um, with with opioid in this country it has been really bad for the past um, 10 years or so 10-15 years has been really bad with opioid use um, good good business I mean we had um, old folks old ladies would actually come in and complain of pain and then you know uh, doctors would just prescribe them and, and you know turn around they they would just sell that uh, sell that um, that 30-day supply uh, that 30-day supply could bring them three four five hundred bucks on the street easily okay so they would turn turn around and sell them very easily so um, a lot of times so when you're gonna prescribe something long term keep that in mind as well even five days ten days of pills um, that could be a pretty good money for them you know um, in the black market on, on the street um, people do sell those all the time So a lot of time with the opioid use disorder, you're gonna see a lot of people uh, that's gonna become with you know lying, cheating, stealing, as well as uh, trying to find a way to get money to buy these things, as well as um, having a cra strong craving. Um, so and un unable to do you know normal things in life, and eventually I mean they they numb themselves to the point they can't feel anything, just anything in their life. They they become a robot. They just kind of go into this cruise control kind of thing, auto autopilot. They don't even aware of what their surrounding, what's going on with them. Um, and and it's been a huge problem, and in this country and around the world too as well. But in this country, we actually have no real solution. Let's just put that way. We have, we don't really have a solution. Um, the treatment that we have is not really treating the disease itself. It's not de treating the use of it. Um, we creating these drugs and we cre spend billions of dollars creating these drugs. People spend it's, it's a billion dollar in the industry, but also people spend you know insurance companies spend billions of dollars detoxing people off of these drugs as well. So it's going to this vicious cycle, and you know, we detoxing doesn't guarantee that they will stop using it. Most of them almost, almost a guarantee that they will relapse within a year or so. Okay, so it's not a good solution. Um, there's no good solution at this point, and there are a couple of um, places and things, um, you know that have trying to find alternative stuff I do I do not recommend this but you probably want to be aware of it um, it's, it's a drug it's, it's not it's a drug called Kratom Kratom in Southeast Asia it's actually pr pronounced Kratom Kratom not Kratom but Kratom or Kratom is actually a um, alternative for a lot of op opioid users actually reporting that they have really successful of using this drug instead of the opioid. Um, work very similarly, but not as it's not addictive as it is according to a lot of these um, opioid users. 
um, that they said that it's not as quite addictive and you don't have the withdrawal symptom you don't have these other side effects that the uh, opioid does have so um, kratom is actually a plant it's a natural plant that's kind of growing wild in Southeast Asia uh, in Malaysia Thailand and Indonesia those are the three countries that this plant actually growing quite a bit um, and in those three countries actually in those two of the three in Thailand and Indonesia this is this plant is still illegal uh, it's, it's considered to be illegal substance in Malaysia is actually uh, they legalized this plant uh, in hope of you know using as a substitute for for opioid use uh, we still don't have enough research um, to back up the plant itself um, there are cases that people could overdose on them uh, there are cases that um, can cause uh, arrhythmias uh, in the heart and also other things as well other symptoms as well like GI symptoms so um, there's not really one clear research uh, showing that this one has uh, has more benefit than than the risk that people are taking and it's not legalized here it's n it's not illegal but it's not legal either it's kind of staying in between at this point but they do sell it in you know on 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 a web on a smoke shop they people sell this all the time so something you should be aware of um, okay when your patient come and see you um, it's closer by the way it's Kratom is actually closer to the, the caffeine tree um, caffeine tree than than opioids so they actually a derivative some uh, cousin neighbor plant of a, of a coffee tree than than the um, um, opioid tree so okay and it works on a different receptor but um, but Apparently, it seemed to be working for a lot of folks. Um, other symptoms you guys could read. I'm sure you've seen these um, quite a bit. Okay. And that's it for today. Uh, thank you for watching. Um, you don't have to make any comment this week. Um, okay. And there's just a worksheet that you have to complete online, a form, Google form that you have to complete. Thank you for watching and have a wonderful day. Welcome folks. Let's continue on. So today, right now we can look at chapter 16. Okay, chapter 16. So we look at the pain, temperature, sleep, sensory function. So it's a long chapter. So I might have to break this video down into a couple of videos. So, okay. So let's look at it. First is pain. Okay, pain, um, pain is the definition of pain is unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage described uh, in terms of such damage. So what this pain really is that you have some type of stimuli going on in your body and send that signal back to your brain telling your brain that something is wrong, something is going on. So it's, it's a way that your body actually telling your uh, telling you that there's something wrong with, um, with how you feel. There's something that you need to pay attention to. Um, pain, again, is actually protective, which is a very key term to, to remember. It's a protective type of phenomenon. It's very complex as well. There's different mechanisms actually sending signal for pain. Okay, But also, yet, it's actually a cognitive 
physical, cognitive, spiritual, emotional, and environmental factors. So pain itself, that's why we, we say pain is subjective, because there's a lot of component uh, going into pain. Uh, you know, how you grow up, uh, your cultural background, uh, your spiritual background could actually play a huge role in terms of how you handle those pain. Okay, so it's, it's a very complex issue. Okay. Uh, there are several theories that actually try to explain what pain is. The first one is specificity theory. Specificity theory. So what that is, is basically the amount of injury. So they say that if there you have more injury, the more pain you actually will get. Plain and simple. And the theory is there's one specific location that you actually have pain. When you have more tissues damaging, the more pain you actually will occur. That's kind of somewhat true, not always the case. So, I mean, you talk about people who have referred pain, um, even though that part of their body is gone, they still continue to have pain. Um, so it, it may pertain to, you know, in a simple cut or, you know, you have laceration or burn. Those might go with this theory. Uh, the other one is called pattern theory. Pattern theory, this is uh, describing the... Um, different roles of intensity based on the, the nerve endings that's sending back information to your CNS, your brain, your spinal cord. Depending on the, the pattern, the way that actually travel back to your brain, it could become more painful or less painful. Okay, That's really account to a lot of experience. Uh, the one that uh, Lily, uh, we use quite a bit is called the gate control theory. Gate control theory. This is uh, referring to there's actually gate uh, cells that actually uh, taking in the information and then kind of file the information and see whether which one should be sent back to your to your brain. Okay, and there's different pathways. Think of it like uh, you have different channels of of roads uh, that actually have different gates controlling it. Which one is going to be open? Which one going to be closed? And so depending on the, the channels, depending on your signal that your signal of pain could go to two or three different channels, and those two or three different channels will signal different types of pain as well. So in terms of pain, it is not just one kind of pain; it's different type of pain. So there's different channels, different roadways, different signal that actually being sent back to your to to your brain on that. Okay, and the uh, neural matrix theory, this is kind of uh, expanding the gate control theory, um, even going into more specific uh, of various like genetic makeup, such psychological makeup or cognitive experience could actually uh, determine that pain of how changing those pain, pain that you have as well, including your uh, plasticity, which means that let's say you have a chronic pain, pain um, you feel that chronic pain for a long time to the point that you're like, well, I, you know, it's there, it's in the back of my head, I kind of feel it, but I just kind of trying to forget about it. So your, your body kind of adapt uh, by closing some of those gates, uh, not, you know, not responding to some of those sensory information that's coming in. Okay. So that's what neurometrics theory is. Uh, there's different pathway. The afferent is mean that's the sensory that's coming in. Afferent is... Uh, is always remember E is mean it's exiting the spine. When it's exiting the spine, if you look at the spine, when it's exiting the spine, which is uh, in the front, okay, the ventral system, uh, is the front is the um, is the efferent pathway. So this is your spine. This is when exiting going out. Uh, you have this little H here. Okay. Uh, so when it's exiting going out, that's the motor. Okay. The sensory is in the back. Sensory is the first thing is in the back. So sensory is when the information is coming back into your spine. Okay. So that's the afferent pathways. Okay. And in, in these, you have the, um, this is the peripheral nervous system, PNS, remember, we talked about PNS and CNS. PNS is where your, all these spinal nerves got started. Okay, okay so you have um, nociception of, or the processing of the pain. So your pain starts this way. You actually start with the transduction, 
where are you creating that pain? So where is the pain is coming from? Let's say you have a cut on your hand. Uh, this is where the the feeling start, the chemical start, the, uh, the, the thermal reaction that's sending that stimuli uh, right here. Okay, that's creating that chemical, uh, sending that information back. And then you have the transmission. So moving from this point, going to your spine, that's the transmission. And the key one that you might want to remember, we'll talk more about it, is the A fibers. Okay, the A fibers. Uh, that's the, the pain uh, usually being carried by. Uh, then you have the perception of how you make sense of that pain. Some people have a high pain tolerance, so they may play down with a lot of the pain. Um, so that's a conscious awareness of you, your pain. Some people kind of push it down. Some people really make it aware that, that you're like, oh, I'm really feeling this. I feel this pain right now. So it's um, depending on your perception. Modulation is... Um, is how you kind of tuning tuning the pain. That's what let's say. Some sometimes you might tune it up. Sometimes you might tune it down, depending on the the signal, the movement, the chemicals, the uh, the feelings as well, emotional uh, component that might play in. Like let's say you want to be a crybaby in front of your boyfriend, girlfriend, um, or your mom, your dad. You you know for some reason, then all of a sudden you feel more pain. You see this a lot with kids. You know when they fall, um, they fall and hit their head, and let's say you know no, if no one is there, they like. Okay, that's fine. It's hurting. It's a little bit. They make a face and then they run around. But then, if there's someone is there, their their parents, they start crying. They, first, they look at the parent, and then they start you know making new faces and they start crying. So that's the modulation of pain. You could turn it up or you can turn it down. Okay. Uh, something to remember, and it's a key to remember, especially for your midterm, um, that the uh, the primary order neurons, which just mean the the main pathways that that you send pain from your location to your spine, is you we're using the myelinated A delta fiber, myelinated A delta fiber. This is the fastest, uh, most reliable three G five G network, right? Uh, so this is the fastest uh, signal that we could send from you know your hand to to the back of your uh, to to your spine. Okay, the other fiber is unmyelinated, uh, unmyelinated C um, polymodal fiber, polymodal fiber. So this is going to be a lot slower. This is more of the chemical nociceptor, thermal chemical, so uh, it's a lot slower. Uh, usually, you're going to feel like a dull ache, or burning sensation. All of those usually come much slower. Okay, where you, where this you actually kind of have a sharp um, knifing kind of pain, um, like really kind of have that. Uh, uh, pinching pain type of deal that you might have with myelinated A delta fibers. Okay. Uh, secondary orders are actually going from the uh, the back, the dorsal horn, the back of your spinal column. Um, these are the interneurons uh, crossing from the from the back part, going into the front part, and traveling up to your brain. Okay, you're gonna see that shortly in the in the, the diagram. And third order is the spinal thalamic tract, which is going up to your brain. Okay, that's carrying information in your brain. So this is the first order is going from your your hand, your arm, your legs, down into the, the horn, the anterior uh, the posterior horn of your spinal cord. And that from uh, again the key one to remember is this alpha, uh, the A. I'm sorry, the A delta. Fiber, a delta fiber coming in, and you have the interneuron sending information across to the other side, and then going all the way up uh, using the second order neurons uh, to your thalamus, and then in your brain you have the third order neurons um, that sending to the uh, pain sensation cortex, which is the frontal cortex. Okay, actually parietal, yes, cortex post central gyrus, which is the parietal cortex. 
Okay, so pain you have threshold. Threshold of pain, this is the lowest density that the person can recognize. So if, if it doesn't come up to here, you won't even feel pain at all. Okay, uh, a lot of times people, you have to also think the pain th threshold is vary from one person to the other person, but also um, based on your belief as well. So if you believe that something is painful, then it's going to be painful. If you believe that something is not painful, uh, then it's not going to be painful. So it's really very subjective. Pain tolerance uh, it, uh, is how much you can actually endure the pain, and it really varies from one individual to the other. So, okay, and if you have over time, you might be able to to kind of tolerance a little bit more. Okay, so again, this is going to be similar to things that you might want to know. Okay, so know this question one. Okay, um, and you guys could check that out. You have this this PowerPoint. Okay, I'm not going to cover every single page because there's a lot of page on here and it's going to be forever. So just going to cover key things that you really need to know. A um, couple of things. First one is there's an excitatory neurotransmitter. So things that actually make you uh, painful. These are the things that actually will cause you pain. So you have the tissue injury information, all of these chemicals and things will actually cause you to have pain. Then you have the inhibitory, which is kind of opposite to that, uh, like GABA and glycine. These actually will calm you down, will actually stop you from have, uh, don't feel any pain. Um, this is the one that you guys would come in, the doctors uh, will come in is uh, using opioids receptors. Uh, opioid receptor is actually inhibiting pain, so you stop you from feeling pain. So you might want to know these, okay, these are actually on your exam, so you might want to know what they are, but um, basically it's a derivative of morphine. Morphine is opioids, so you have different things like endorphin, um, dynodorphin, endomorphins, um, and Kephalins, okay, so all of these uh, basically will help you don't feel any pain at all, okay, so keep that in mind as you take your exam, okay. So there's different types of pain, okay, this clinical description of pain, there's different types of pain, nociceptive pain, you have um, pain that actually, no, you, you cut your body, you cut yourself, you get a punch, <laughs> someone punch your face, someone slap your face, you know exactly what that pain is coming from. Uh, somatic and visceral, you could have it from the outside or inside. So let's say someone punch your uh, punch you in the abdominal area, so you feel uh, that's that could be the visceral pain that you actually have from the inside. And interestingly, I was just reading uh, something out on the side that um, Houdini, Houdini, the great magician, uh, around the turn of the century, um, there's a lot of people saying that now the, the cause of death that he actually had was uh, someone actually punch him in the stomach uh, a few days before his act where he actually died. Uh, and because he wasn't actually ready for that punch, uh, he could have got uh, internal bleeding or bruises uh, that caused him to have that visceral pain and caused him to uh, unable to perform the trick that he's supposed to do. So just kind of side note. But uh, there's another type of pain as well. You have uh, non-nociceptive non pain. So you have neuropathic pain, which is like nerve ending kind of pain, like pinched nerve, trap nerve. You, some of you probably have these experience with this or you see patient with this as well. Peripheral and central nervous system that actually could cause pain, um, pain from your neck, from your, uh, from your muscles, all of these. Okay, um, We could classify based on acute versus chronic. Acute is less than three months. The chronic is longer than three months. Okay, Plain and simple. Uh, so acute, less than three months. Usually you're going to have other system responding to that pain as well, like tachycardia, hypertension, diaphoresis, other things that are kind of telling, hey, so there's something wrong with my body. Hey, pay attention. You might want to focus on this because you have something wrong with your body. Uh, and you could even cause you anxiety. 
um, you have acute somatic pain. Again, that's like your muscle pain, your bone pain, your joint pain, your skin pain. So all things that are on the outside, somatic, think of it's outside. Uh, so these would be like the A delta fibers, those are sharp, well localized pain. And if it's C fiber, that would be kind of dull, aching, throbbing kind of pain. Whereas the visceral, which is in the inside of your body, in the or internal organ, uh, and just poorly localized, you may not even know where it is. And you kind of, especially with kids, you know, you feel they just kind of feel all the over all over the place. If it's inside his belly, uh, they would say, "My belly doesn't feel good." So then you have to really find out, you know, where is it in your belly just that doesn't feel good. Okay. Um, big thing that you definitely need to know is the refer pain. As a doctor, you, you're going to get this quite a bit. And if you don't remember this, uh, you could actually misdiagnose patients. So you really need to know uh, where things are, where kind, what kind of refer pain you actually have. Um, so basically, so this site you might want to kind of put in your head. So the appendix pain is on the lower right um, uh, quadrant, lower right quadrant. quadrant. Uh, you also have the liver pain, uh, could be up on your shoulder, it actually could be shooting to your scapula as well, um, or right here, upper um, right right upper quadrant. Okay, you have the stomach pain, could be epigastric kind of pain. Um, you have pancreas pain, could be epigastric or toward the left, left upper quadrant. Uh, the heart, you all know these, the heart, uh, we'll talk more about that next uh, next week. Uh, you have the kidney, which is uh, on the lower side and uh, usually on the back side of the body. Uh, the liver could actually, like, like I said, radiate to the back, to the scapula. Same thing with the stomach um, and the heart. Okay. So knowing these should help you with a lot of things. So I would highly recommend knowing them. Chronic pain, that's when you have more than three months. This is then we kind of don't understand what, what that means because it's not really responding to anything if you have chronic pain. That means that something is wrong and it doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of you know why you have pains for that long. Um, really serve no protective purpose. You know, you know, evolutionary or uh, think of your body-wise. I mean, you if you have pain that long. Um, neuroplasticity, meaning that you actually will start to learn how to cope with those pain. Your brain starts to shut off some of those uh, signal. Uh, you, you kind of be able to cope with it better. You kind of desensitize some of the feelings of those pain. Okay, But then could cause a long-term mental issue as well, like depression, anxiety, and other things that could cause those, uh, those feelings. Neuropathic pain, you have like burning, shooting, shock-like, tingling kind of pain. Uh, that's the key that you should remember. Uh, most of the time, when, when your nerve gets trapped, you're going to feel that burning pain or shooting pain or shocking pain. Phantom limb, I mentioned earlier, uh, when you actually don't have your limbs already, um, then you start having those pain. Uh, one of the most effective therapy is actually having them uh, look using a mirror, just using a mirror, cover up the, the leg or the arm, uh, and pretend like they actually have the arm or the leg, and then have them try to move it, and it actually helps desensitize those pain really well. Okay, um, let's focus on next one. Okay, so pediatric and perception of pain with kids. Uh, kids usually have a lower level threshold than um, than the adult. Uh, kids actually, if you if you seeing kids a lot of time, they kind of exaggerate kind of their pain, and, and even even though that's I may say that, but they it's not because of them, but because of their body. That's how it's built, uh, and uh, they want to you know some of the pain kind of uh, exaggerated or even amplified. Let's use the word amplified, not exaggerate, but more amplified than the adult because then you only. Uh, tell the body like this is specific location, specific thing that's going on uh, with me, and we, we need to fix that right away. Okay, and especially infants, you're gonna see that they use a lot of their facial expression, crying, body movement, uh, to trying to tell the story of the pain. Okay, and a lot of time, and, and we we take this in, in the wrong way as well because a lot of times, um, the, uh, when the infants actually trying to communicate this pain, um, 
a lot of times they shut themselves off. They cry so much that they, uh, they they cannot handle that pain anymore. So they actually fall asleep or or passed out in a sense. And we think, oh, well, I think they they're doing good. They're doing better uh, because they're not crying anymore. But in in actuality, they actually fainted. They actually their brain couldn't take how much the, how, how how much painful that is, and so they just shut everything down. Okay, so keep that in mind as you're treating kids. When you see kids, uh, their their pain deception is actually much greater than us, especially infants. So, and you could see in their eye that the pitch sound of the of the cry as well usually have a high high pitched sound, really uh, agony kind of type of sound as well. Not just like crying for food, for crying for milk, uh, not the same type of cry. Okay, and as we get older, your pain threshold actually increase. Our threshold increase. Uh, your skin become thicker. Um, everything just kind of little. Uh, your pain level kind of go lower as well. Okay, uh, including your tolerance of pain go lower. Okay, uh, women gonna be more sensitive than men, but there's a lot of um, you know um, men's and babies usually. A lot of women say that, so men usually trying uh, trying to get that attention from women, cry a little bit more. Okay, so let's go into the temperature regulation a little bit. Okay, body temperature. So when you talk about body temperature, your normal range is between um, 97.2 to 99.9, or 36.2 to 37.7. Okay, that's the normal range. Um, women goes up and down a lot more than men. So first we'll talk about hypothalamic control of temperature. So this is where your brain, this is in your hypothalamus, where you actually control the temperature. Your body, uh, that's the center of your temperature control, and it does everything from chemical reaction, uh, skeletal muscle contraction, trying to, to trying to do everything to balance your body temperature to what's going on. Okay, um, Heat loss, you could have all of these causing your heat loss, um, which is coming in very handy when you actually, uh, you know, during summertime when things get hotter, you have radiation, you have, you know, sweating, evaporation, all of this help your body cool down. Okay, release some of those heat out into the environment. Um, so, uh, when we talk about uh, pediatric versus aging, when uh, for kids, kids actually have much uh, smaller size um, and high body surface ratio to weight ratio. So, basically, uh, their body actually give off a lot, a lot, a lot of more heat. So, uh, the brown fat. This is the fat that they actually born with. So, so they actually have to give up some some of those heat okay so that's where they need to keep themselves warm so a lot of time baby uh, just think of them like insulation they actually bought with insulation so where they have to keep some of those heat so since their body is so small you have that heat loss quite a bit whereas we get older things are not quite the same uh, where you actually uh, your metabolic rate decreased so you are actually producing less heat in your body so you actually doesn't need to do any of those um, okay so key things to remember, Lily, this is how we produce fever. So how we make fever. You actually could have um, fever. This is how we produce it. There's a couple of ways that you need to know how, to, how we produce fever. So one is that uh, you have the um, pathogens coming in, like bacteria that's coming in your body. Your bacteria, and this is key to remember, exogenous pyrogen. Exogenous pyrogen, so something from the outside coming into your body, you know, coming into your body, causing, uh, releasing endotoxin releasing those endotoxin and the endotoxin then go tell your brain to to increase the increase the temperature so that's one way and the second way is that your body responding to those bacteria and immune system is releasing all of these uh, chemicals TNF alpha interleukin 1 interleukin 6 uh, and PGE2 prostaglandin E2 okay, all of these uh, enzyme interferon interferon as well all of these enzyme uh, actually will go tell your brain, tell your hypothalamus to actually increase temperature as well. So so two ways, two ways really that your body 
your body actually tell you to increase the temperature the fever is one is you have infection your that microbacterial micro microbial products which is uh, endotoxin that released by usually bacteria or, or viral viruses um, these endotoxin then goes to you tell your brain hypothalamus then it goes and increase the body temperature or two you actually have these macrophages uh, and monocytes are uh, releasing all of these chemicals, um, proscanin E2, uh, DNF-alpha, uh, interleukin-1, 6, interferon, um, all of these chemicals tell your brain, yes, let's jack up the strength temperature. So what's the what's the point of jacking up temperature? So one, when you actually elevate the temperature, the bacteria and the viruses, it's, harder, they, it's hard for them to stay alive because you know, you're actually burning them up. Uh, that's not their ideal environment for them to grow. Okay, that's not the ideal environment for them to grow. So you technically reduce uh, the growth rate of the bacteria and viruses, it's kind of slow them down. Uh, you're not killing them, you're not to the point of killing them, but at least you're trying to slow them down. Okay, uh, let, uh, So they, they're not gonna reproduce as much. But also, it actually uh, produces other things as well. Uh, cause, you know, bringing, uh, triggering the other system, you know, like immune system, uh, triggering the uh, the catecholamine response, triggering the physiological, physiological response, and other things to to help you fight against these things. Uh, question three, fever is stimulated by, the correct answer is TNF-alpha, okay? Uh, if people might see this and say, oh, it's number two, but again, this is endogenous, not exogenous. So if you go back, you're gonna see this actually saying exogenous. And exogenous and versus endogenous. Endogenous means you already have these pathogen inside you and the pathogen inside you causing endotoxin, and that doesn't happen. So endotoxin is actually caused by the exo exogenous causing from the pathogen that outside of your body, coming into your body, causing releasing those endotoxin. That's the response. So the correct answer is TNF-alpha and other things like interleukins 1, 6 and uh, interferon. Again, we talked about these. It kills the organism. It's uh, kind of deprive bacteria from food, promote the killing of these things. Okay. And something to uh, my want you to my want to remember is the older adult, uh, you actually have decreased uh, or no fewer respond to infections. A lot of time, uh, this is the problem because your your body is not quite efficient like you used to, and that's why you know with with coronavirus, your body may not uh, increase the fever enough fever to to slow down the infection or slow down those those pathogens. Um, whereas children tend to develop higher temperature than the adult uh, because of very active in terms of the system. Uh, something to keep in mind is um, FUO, not UFO, okay, don't get those mixed up. Uh, fever unknown origin, this is one of the most important thing. Uh, if the fever is actually above the 38.3 or 101.1 um, and you don't know what's going on, you definitely need to find out what's going on, what's causing those fever and trying to bring them down, okay. Um, hypothermia, this means you get way too hot, you get way too hot. Um, anything above 105.8 causing uh, nerve damage. Okay, convulsion. You might go into coma as well. Uh, anything above 109.4, that's not good. Okay, that could be death. Okay, and this could be a lot of things because of the high heat. It could cause you know dehydration. Could cause your brain to actually malfunctioning of your brain. Uh, a lot of system in your brain actually will shut down. Okay, and cause death. So uh, the heat itself doesn't kill you, but what heat does to other system kills you. Okay, so uh, the, the rising the temperature in your body. Um, by itself may not do a lot of things, but when it affects other organs, affects other things in your body, and those are the ones that will kill you. Okay. 
Uh, so heat cramps, you guys know all these. So heat exhaustion, we know so well here in Arizona. So heat stroke as well. We're not going to spend a little bit, um, a lot of time on, on those. Uh, hypothermia, just to keep in mind, that's 35 degrees or 95 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Okay, your body will start to form uh, ice crystal. Uh, so things will actually slow down. Um, and that's one of the key things I want to talk about, like accidental hypothermia. This is when you fall into the lake, ice cold lake, or some people are uh, not smart enough jump into the cold lake just for fun, and you could actually have that induced hypothermia. Okay, uh, but therapeutic hypothermia. This is something we actually been doing since World War Two, right after World War Two. Um, one thing that we noticed that you know during World War One, not a lot of people actually die from World War One, and then when we look at World War Two and we question ourselves why actually people die a lot quicker more so in World War Two, especially in Vietnam War. Uh, what happened is if you look at World War One and Two, a lot of time you know people actually got wounded in, out there in the field and they get they got stuck out there, but they we just keep them there. We didn't move them as much. We do a lot of movement and we it's pretty cold in Europe, so um, the cold there in Europe actually help preserve the body, kind of slow things down. Uh, that's why. The ER is so cruel because we trying to slow things down. These uh, these are kind of to therapeutic hypothermia, just slow down enough uh, so that you know things your blood vessels kind of slow down your uh, tissues damage. You know, giving your body time to heal itself, repair itself as well. Okay, um, and then a lot of times actually, you know, that's kind of. Uh, model in a lot of country now, where you you have an MI patient, uh, they usually don't move them. Uh, they, the the EMS try not to move them until they stabilize because they, you know, they, we learn that if we keep moving them, things like that, it actually make make it worse for the patient. So, okay. Uh, so before we, I think I'll end this video here before we start on the next topic. Okay. Okay, folks, let's continue on. So now the fun topic, Lily. Uh, a lot of people actually love talking about sleep. Um, yes, we, we love them, but we don't get enough of them. So sleep, uh, two stages of sleep. You actually have rapid eye movement or REM and non-rapid eye movement or non-REM. Again, sleep is in your hypothalamus. So it's just like your fever, your temperature. Uh, sleep is also in your hypothalamus as well. Okay, and uh, you... This would be good to know. Stages of sleep, you have uh, stage one, two, three, uh, non-REM one, non-REM two, and three. The one that we spend the most time is two. Okay, The one that we spend the most time is two. And these are the one that will actually help you restore and repair things. So this is a good type of sleep. As you can see, uh, you have these spindles depending on the size of the spindles uh, based on the, uh, the, the stage you are in. The second phase is the REM sleep, and that's only happened about four or five times during the night, four to six times during the night. And this is where you have what we call a paradoxical sleep. So uh, it's a lighter sleep, but you're not really awake. Um, your eye actually moves quite a bit, uh, so it occurs every 90 minutes. So this is going to be, a, if you take a nap during the day, let's say for those of you actually doing day naps, um, it's going to be hard for you to actually get to REM sleep. And a lot of time you might come close to it and you get woken up. Uh, let's say you sleep for an hour and you have to go back to work um, and that you kind of feel groggy because you feel more tired than before you actually going to sleep because you're disrupting this very stage, the REM stage. So the REM stage actually become very important uh, in terms of sleep. Okay. Uh, again, you're going to hit the REM stage uh, three or four times, six times depending on the person per night. Some people might be less. Um, so the longest stage is number two. Okay. 
Uh, newborn sleep quite a bit, and there's something to remember uh, to let your patient know is you're actually doing OB stuff. Uh, the first day of the baby comes out, uh, that's the best day to sleep because the baby will spend that first day of life. All of us spend that first day of life sleeping about 23 hours that day. 23 hours that day. So we come, we wake up about an hour the most uh, just to feed and then go back again to sleep. Uh, that might be broken up, but usually uh, something to keep in mind. So for moms, uh, just let them know that, you know, uh, trying to get sleep on that first day um, when the baby first came out. That's the day you're going to sleep the most. After that, you are on your own. Okay. They will haunt you for the next six, seven months or even longer or the rest of your life. Okay. So. Um, kids usually sleep more than uh, more than adult in general speaking uh, infant cycle usually of much shorter 50 to 60 minutes um, they go into REM sleep quite quite pretty quickly and you might see that in the children you could see that I move really quickly uh, adult we might take a while before we get to those stages okay um, as we age things actually Going, going bad to worse. Uh, we actually sleep less during as we age. Uh, something to remember. Just um, we just and we just don't get a full night's sleep, and and sleep kind of broken up for us. It's taking us longer to fall asleep, and we wake up more at night. So if you know if you live by the you know Sun City, you will know this that they go to bed quite early. They wake up way even earlier in the morning, uh, and they wake up you know maybe two or three o'clock because they couldn't go back to sleep. But they do spend time sleep during the day as well to make up some of those time. Okay. Um, another thing to mention, something to you, for you to know, is that uh, the shorter the sleep, okay, the shorter the life expectancy will be. So keep that in mind. If you actually sleep only, let's say, an average sleep that we should have is between six to eight hours for the adult. Okay, adults should sleep about six to eight hours. If you sleep too much, shorter the life expectancy you will be. If you sleep too little, you will have a shorter life expectancy as well. So you don't want to sleep too much. You don't want to sleep too little. You want to sleep right in the middle between six to eight hours every night. Uh, some people I know, some people sleep only four hours, some people only sleep three hours, some people only sleep five hours a night. Those are not good. Those are actually taxing on your body, taxing on your mind. Uh, you actually will see consequences of those like hypertension, obesity, uh, high cholesterol level. Um, it's really you know, negative um, factors. All of those are could actually cause those, those things. Higher stress, anxiety, you name it. So sleep is good. Sleep is like number one issue. If you actually could come up with a pill to solve sleep problem, you'll be a millionaire. Literally, um, people want to get better sleep. We spend millions of dollars to try to get better sleep. Okay. Um, so for classification of sleep, uh, you have dysomnia, parasomnia, sleep disorder, and proposed sleep uh, sleep disorder. So dysomnia, uh, this is inability to fall asleep uh, or staying asleep. So insomnia, you actually cannot sleep. Okay, you cannot fall asleep. Uh, you stay awake, or you could you may be waking up frequently through, throughout the night. Obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. This is when you have difficulty breathing uh, due to obesity. Other, uh, you know, your neck, your tongue could uh, cause the obstruction of the airway, cause you to wake up at night. Uh, rest like leg syndrome or LS. You're gonna see this quite a bit, so you definitely gonna see these two quite a bit. Um, you have these prinkle, uh, trickling and pricking of your feet, your legs, and you cannot go to sleep at night. Yeah, you kind of like feel like cramps, and you feel like so tired. You want to go, you put your, your brain want to go to sleep, but your leg just wouldn't stop, you know, and preventing you to fall asleep. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome. This is due to leptin resistance, so you're actually gaining weight, uh, and then also cause you to unable to breathe at night. Uh, circadian rhythm disorder. This is jet lag. So if you 
you know, travel quite a bit. You're going to have jet lag, definitely. And we tried, we did tons and tons of research on jet lags, and we tried to come up with ways to, to cure jet lag. And the only way, the best way is to sleep um the you know the schedule that you're going to so let's say you know you're going to be traveling tomorrow it's going to the other side of the world like asia or china or japan or singapore you want to actually sleep according to their schedule as much as you can okay that's the best way to 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 deal with jet lag um and even the plane that you're traveling there you're traveling trans-pacific flight uh, the plane will actually schedule themselves to actually with the local time that you're going to so they actually was trying to adjust to that local time so that your brain could actually adjust to to the new clock um hypersomnia this is people sleep too much you actually just sleep all, all the time so um, that's not good either there's something wrong with you in terms of sleeping way too much narcolepsy uh, narcolepsy um that's basically you just fall asleep out of the blue okay um we do have medication for this and you guys hopefully learn that in next class um, to help with narcolepsy. Parasomnia, which is quite interesting. These are the people who sleepwalk, sleep talk, sleep, uh, whatever you, you do, stuff during sleep, you have night terrors. All these under parasomnia, you actually, there are a lot of weird ones as well that sleep eating. You actually wake up in the, at night and eat. Um, there's, um, you sleep fighting, you actually, you're just fighting other people, you're actually hitting your loved ones next to next to your bed. Um, there's sleep masturbating, there's sleep sex as well, uh, where you just wake up in the middle of the night, just find someone to have sex with, and then you don't even remember, you don't remember sex, you know, in anything at all, you know, in the morning. Um, a lot of men tend to use that kind of excuse, uh, so, but... But no, it's actually it just uh, it's actually a real disease, real disorder where your brain actually does not register any of those, and you can actually wake up at night and doing all of these things. Okay, uh, you have sleep talking, nocturnal leg cramps. You actually having red clamp while you while you asleep. Sleep paralysis. This is quite happen quite a bit. People you know uh, associate this phenomenon to like you know, you know ghosts, third uh, another world or whatnot. But technically, what happened is is your um, norepinephrine. Uh, you have these chemical norepinephrine. Use uh, your brain supposed to release those chemical norepinephrine to paralyze your muscle but what happened is that your brain doesn't release it when your brain doesn't release it, it releases even though your brain is asleep uh, but your body is still moving because your muscle are not paralyzed um, so you actually have some of these like I'm sorry that's referring to the sleep talking sleepwalking all of those things but sleep paralysis is uh, this is when the chemical is working too much when you actually have these too much norepinephrine going on in your body whereas everything in your body is paralyzed but your brain is not fully asleep your brain is actually is half asleep uh, some people actually might experience this while they actually uh, having those REM stages of sleep where they're trying to come up and they feel like they're awake enough they hear everything around them they know what's going on around them but there's too much norepinephrine in your body that you can't really move your body uh, so you feel like someone is being kind of you're being possessed so you're like i hear things i see uh, i hear things all the time but i just cannot open my eye cannot open i cannot move my leg or my body that's called sleep paralysis okay uh, nightmares sleep apnea sit you guys know all about sit that's okay it's, um okay Touch, you have different receptors for touch. You have proprioception, you have Meissner, Parsenian, all of those are touch, pressure, light touch, all of those. Uh, diseases, stuff that you should know. Um, vestibular nystigmus, this means that your eye just keep moving, just keep uh, ticking. Uh, that's basically caused by your ear and the disturbance in the semicircle canal. Uh, when it's overstimulated, your eye kind of responds to that as well. Vertical is when things are spinning. Again, there's a subjective and objective vertical. Subjective is when you feel like you're spinning. Objective, you feel like everyone else, the room is spinning. Okay, so there's different, two different things. Again, it has to do with 
the semicircle canals. Same thing with Meniere disease. Meniere disease is the uh, the tinnitus ringing in your ear. Um, that's basically imbalance of that semicircular canal. You actually don't have enough um, fluid or nutrients in your in your semicircle canals. Uh, vision, the eyes, is something that you should know. You're going to see this all the time. Okay, I guarantee you in your in your practice, you're going to see this all the time. Um, um, Blepharitis, uh, this is inflammation of your eyelids. You could see this uh, poor kid have inflammation around the eyelid. Remember kids, you know, touch things with their hands, dirt everywhere, and then they rub their eyes. So when they start rubbing their eyes, this thing kind of happen. okay? Uh, hodiolum, hodiolum is a sty, is actually in the sebaceous gland, so keep that in mind, sebaceous gland. So just like pimple, exactly like pimple, but happen in your eyes. Gelasian, um, gelasian, uh, is think of them like cysts. Uh, think of this as like cysts. It happened in the... Mebomian gland, mebomian gland. So it's a different gland than sebaceous gland. Okay, uh, it's an oil secreting gland as well. Um, but it's actually look feel like a cyst. It's, uh, you're gonna feel a little bit more harder stuff inside. That's called the uh, chalazine. Uh, entropian, entropian is when the eye uh, rolls inward. Okay, you are you have the lower lid entropian right here. The lower lid is kind of curving in, so the eyelashes actually start pointing inside touching your eyeball, okay? So this is uh, very common as we get older. Uh, the other term that they didn't put on here is called ectropion. Ectropion is the opposite where your eye actually moving outward, so your eyelashes will actually fold outward. So you're gonna see more of the red red part inside of the eye, okay, linings of that eye. Conjunctivitis, this is the infection. You have different types of infection. Bacterial usually are, generally speaking, uh, not never 100%, but generally speaking, you're gonna see more of purulent type of discharge uh, over the eye. So you have like yellow, white discharge or crust over the eye that usually is bacterial. Um, but then some viral have that as well. And this is generally speaking, the viral uh, um, viral infection looks like this. Okay, and kind of nice and clear, but just the eye still red. You have alert, you know, allergic conjunctivitis, that's just allergy. Chronic conjunctivitis, they have that all the time. Tacoma is the uh, chlamydia conjunctivitis. Pretty bad. You know, people do weird things. You know, chlamydia usually happen in genitalia. That's all I'm gonna say. Okay, you guys have some imagination. You guys could run wild with that. Uh, keratitis. Keratitis is the inflammation of your cornea. Inflammation of your cornea. One key thing to remember: you actually gonna see the cornea clouding. You might see the cornea clouding. You can see right here. There's a little drawing of that white line here. Uh, that's the cornea clouding, uh, making the cornea part of your eye actually become a little cloudy. So any of these, um, you walk, you could treat it, you know, conjunctivitis in your office pretty easily, but if they have, other than that, you know, a chronic condition, you might want to refer out, okay? The structure of the eyes, um, you might, you should know these by now. You have the cornea, which is the outside, less, really less vascular, so when we dam damage this takes a long time, very painful as well, there's lots of nerve ending there. Uh, when we do LASIK, we shave this part out, uh, that's why, it, and it takes forever to grow. Technically, it takes six, seven years to grow, so that's how, how long the LASIK lasts, because eventually you will grow that back, <laughs> okay? Eventually you grow those back. So that's what happened with LASIK. And you have two chamber, you have this um, aqua chamber on the front, and then the viscous chamber in the back, the lens, the muscle around it, uh, you have the retina in the back here, that's where you see. Um, and you have the optic disc right here, uh, going to the optic nerve. You have the fovea, the best vision spot. So all of these lovely terms that you should already know. Um, as we 
age, things do get worse. Um, you could have strabismus, which is a deviation of one of your eyes, so your eye could kind of move one side or the other. Okay, the strabismus could cause double vision, diplopia. The thickness is basically that sticking of the eye. You could have the pendular nystigmus or the jerk nystigmus as well. So, cataract is the most common eye disease that you will see uh, surgery as well for the 60 and older. Uh, this is the clouding of the eye. Um, usually, you could have this early on as well. Don't don't be surprised. A lot of people coming from different country. If you actually work with refugee, you're gonna see this quite a bit. Uh, even myself as well. Um, me myself. Uh, this is my personal information. So uh, I actually had both of my eyes actually had cataracts, and I had surgery on both of my eyes already. Uh, the first one I had was back when I was 37, 38 years old, and then another one was at around 44, 45. So, um, so cataract. Is the clouding on your eyes, um, and this could happen as you know, young kids as well. Uh, you could have a ten-year-old, twelve-year-old in third-world country, in in Thailand, in uh, India, in you know, Indonesia. You've seen a lot of those cases. A very very simple procedure. Going in, uh, take about half an hour to an hour to actually remove those those lens. Uh, glaucoma is something to watch out for because this you could go blind. You actually increase the pressure of the of the eye. Okay, intraocular pressure. Uh, the pressure is supposed to be uh, 12 to 20. You could actually use uh, the eye puff to test it, or you could now with this little machine that you actually little pin. They put a numbing solution and then you actually press on it, and it will tell you with a little beep and will tell you how much pressure you have in the eye. Anything above 20, that's not good. Uh, there's medication to actually help with glaucoma as well. Retinal detachment. This is going to look like like a little curtain actually being flipped up, and then it's going to be black underneath. So this is a medical emergency. You need to go in and stitch those up. Okay, um, only um, and those has to be done in the hospital. Only uh, macular degeneration. This is where you are starting seeing the uh, the black spot in the middle. Okay, uh, macular degenerations. As you get older, your accommodation is where you, when you squint the eye, you have these muscles kind of stretching the, the lens, uh, and then you could adjust uh, the length of things that you see uh, to make it clearer, to make it look better. Uh, that's called accommodation. As you get older, you don't have that. When you actually lose that, we call that presbyopia. Presbyopia is when you're losing that accommodation of your eye. You can't really make any adjustment with what you see. Um, these terms you should know because you're going to be dealing with them all the time. Myopia, hyperopia, uh, astigmatism, so myopia, nearsightedness, hyperopia, farsightedness, uh, astigmatism. This is the, uh, when it kind of moves on the side. And your eyeball is not straight, so your eyeball is not nice and round. It's actually a different shape, elongated, whatnot. Color blindness, we've talked about some of these already in genetics, so it's common in men, uh, X-linked recessive, uh, more so in men than women, and usually it's the red-green color. Uh, before we tell people that there's no cure to this, but now uh, we actually have glasses and lens that actually help with color blindness. doesn't help 100%, but um, those glasses and lens actually help more than 60-70% of the patient that are color colorblind. So a little expensive side, but $600 for ability to be able to see red, uh, that goes a long way. Okay. Um, it's a big one to remember. This is you're gonna you need to know these. This one, uh, papillae, papillae edema. Papillae edema is all of these white spot here that you're seeing. Uh, this is the optic disc around here. It's called optic disc. Uh, when the optic disc has actually become bigger, this could be a lot of things. So one of the one of them is called optic neuroma. Also, the other thing is could be MS. You could have this optic disc actually become bigger. Uh, the papillary edema is very consistent to other diseases like uh, you could have intracranial pressure, um, so tumor in your brain. You could also have um, 
in diabetes uh, problem. You could see hemorrhages here as well, lots of hemorrhages, different location, different area that could, you know, talk that could be a sign of hypertension. Uh, right here, you're seeing the artery actually completely gone. So that could be a sign of hypertension, could be a sign of diabetes, uh, un, you know, not, um, not, not well-controlled diabetes. Ears, you have the external ear, which is the oracle. So you have the external immediate auditory meatus, which is the outside canal. Uh, some people call it auditory canal. Tympanic membrane is your eardrum. Uh, middle ear, you have three bones, malazincus and stapes. The oval window is going to your uh, cochlea, which is like a snail-like shape. And then the round window is at the other end. Okay. But in the ear, you have the help with your hearing, your equil equilibrium. And there's a tube going down into your mouth as well. Okay, uh, you guys could re uh, review these on your own. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy. As you can see, there's uh, this eustachian tube that goes down into your mouth. Okay, a lot of time when you actually have middle ear infection, this tube actually closes. So when you actually have sinus infection, uh, this tube actually closes. When this closes, you actually couldn't pop your ear, so you feel pressure build up in your ear. Same thing when you go up in the airplane, uh, this tube actually could close uh, and causing you to actually have that build up pressure in your ear. And one way to release that pressure is to stick a finger into your mouth and then swipe down on the side. Okay, just stick about this far in, okay, and then swipe down. When you swipe down, you open this new station tube, then you actually stabilize that pressure in your ear. So same thing with kids. Uh, you know, when kids going on the airplane, the reason they're crying, uh, yelling out and crying, because that pressure is not stabilizing their ear. That's why they might be crying, trying to open up that pressure. Um, that's why when you, you know when you want your ear to pop, we recommend chewing gum. So you keep moving that, and eventually you move your station tube for you to be open. Okay. Um, you could help them if you're on a plane, if you want to actually help that baby to, you could actually stick the finger into their mouth and open this uh, eustachian tube. You don't have to stick that far, very, not, not too, too far. But ask for permission first. Don't just stick your finger into someone, someone else's child. Uh, you could get arrested. Okay. And ask the parent whether they want, they want you to do that. Explain the procedure first. Okay. And stay away from the teeth or the tongue. Stay away from the away from the teeth or tongue. Always go on the side, on the bugle, on the cheek side, uh, because if you don't, you don't stay away. You could get your finger bite off. That's a reflex on your, in your mouth that will chomp stuff down. So make sure you stay on the side. Okay, so um, otitis externa and media. Otitis externa is infection of the uh, outside ear. So swimmers here. Uh, every time, every now and then, you might see the ear actually falls down. Especially with kids, you're gonna see their ear might be falling down like this. So you could see the, the right side and the left side is not the same height. When you see that, you think of two things. One is the otitis externa or um, the, uh, the name skipping me, uh, the bone in the back here, the mastoiditis, mastoiditis. So two things, so mastoiditis or the otitis externa. So when your ears start to fall down, that's one of the two indications that you're gonna see, okay? And you could examine that. Uh, otitis media is in infection inside the ear. Uh, this is you can see fluid build up inside the uh, inside the ear. Your you, ear shouldn't be like this; should be nice and clear. And also, you should see a reflection of the light uh, at the uh, ten or two degree. You know, at ten or two, you're gonna see the reflection of light uh, always there. Um, this one, this is special. And this is my ear. Yes, this is a picture of my ear. This has happened in March of 2020, right around the time of pandemic. Uh, I was very sick for several weeks, and one of the things that I developed at that time was the uh, otitis media. And I, I checked myself. Uh, Look inside my ear, and lo and behold, you can see everything is nice and red. You can see the fluid build up in the ear. Um, the reflection is right in the middle. That means it's bulging out when things are. You can see the light here, the light source in the middle. That means it actually the tympanic membrane is bulging out like this. So you can see the reflection right in the tip. Okay, so that means you definitely have the um, uh, otitis media.
antibiotics, then things get better. Okay, olfaction is your smell. You could have too much. Not actually, most people have too little smell. Some people have your smell goes down. When your smell goes down, you actually won't taste a lot of food. A lot of food actually based on smell. If you can't smell, everything tastes like chicken. Uh, taste. Uh, you have cranial nerve seven and nine help with your taste. Okay. And these are the five five tastes: sour, sweet, salty, bitter, and umami. So sour is on the side. Uh, sour is on the side of your tongue. The sweet is on the tip of your tongue. The salty is in the corner here, and then bitter is in the back. And umami is actually deeper down in your throat. Okay. Um, alteration of taste: you could actually have low taste. Um, Acusia uh, is an absence of taste. So. And that's it for this video. Thank you for watching and I'll see you in the next video.